Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, February 6th, 843-661-0937 is our number. I would say the day after the NASCAR race season began, but I'm not sure I want to quantify yesterday's um, ceremonies as NASCAR racing. Uh-oh. Okay. So you've well, got, give, you've good got morning, a good morning, Rev. Good morning. And I, I take it you have a rant queued up and ready to go. I don't know that I've got a rant. I don't remember ever turning away from a NASCAR race until last night. It was unwatchable as far as I'm concerned. Um, they're trying to do, they're trying to be everything to everybody. And it's a, it's kind of a niche sport. I mean, let's admit that hockey is somewhat of a niche sport. NASCAR is somewhat of a niche sport. Um, it's not exportable to all places around uh, the country, the, the, much less the world. There, there are certain regions of America that have never embraced NASCAR racing for a multitude of reasons. So I, I thought about this this morning, Rev. It's a little bit like the, um, the debate you and I have about talk radio. Are we going to diversify, become more engaging and more enlightening and more, um, more, more riveting and more appealing and attractive to the masses? Or are we going to really and truly honor and behold ourselves to those who uh, have demonstrated a willingness to tolerate talk radio, even when there's not a lot to talk about? And I think NASCAR is very similar to talk radio in that regard. Um, there's a big unreached audience out there. And you want to do anything imaginable to reach that unreached audience, but not make fools of yourself. Not make a spectacle of the sport. Um, it is somewhat niche. Talk radio is somewhat niche. Accept that as reality and don't try to broaden your horizons, but so far. I get engaging different universes of, of audience. I get trying to be more appealing and attractive to the masses. But you don't race in a soapbox and, or excuse me, a, a shoebox <laughs> and then stop at halftime of a race and have a rap concert. I mean, that's just not the sort of, um, the sort of engagement I think most NASCAR fans expect right. from from the sport. I mean, I, you know, but it is what it is, and I, I guess there's some um, that there's some consultant that leadership has hired that says here's the future of the sport, and you go out to um, the L.A. Coliseum, which is without question one of the most storied venues in all of humankind, and you convert the um, the football stadium slash Olympic state Olympic stadium into a racetrack. Mm-hmm. And you race. That's what they did. And the top speed is 80 miles an hour. I mean, I came home from Columbia yesterday and three cars passed me running 95. <laughs> you know, they right. would have, uh, they would have been out. I mean, that, they would have been the fastest car on the track at the, uh, the LA Coliseum. But anyway, it is what it is. All I'll say is this. I have never, well, I say never. I have hardly ever turned my television from a NASCAR event until last night. At about nine thirty or so, I said enough of this. I mean, I just can't. This is unwatchable, and um, and I'll wait two weeks until the Daytona Five Hundred comes along, and we get back to the niche, niche way of racing. Was it really just kind of the start and stop nature of what was going on? I mean, they they were getting tangled up around every. Well, I mean, it's just there's twenty some odd cars on a third of a mile racetrack inside a football stadium. I mean, it's just not racing. It's um, can I gouge my way through here? Can I gouge my way through there? No, you can't. Why? Because there's 22 other cars trying to gouge their way through a third of a mile um, racetrack. It's just not much fun to watch. And then at the at the uh, at the end, excuse me, at the halftime, what well, race has a halftime? Yesterday had a halftime, and they have some rap concert or hip hop concert. And um, you know, I just think there's that's asking a lot of NASCAR fans. Nothing against hip hop. Everybody has their own um, sort of um, 
you know, affinities for music. You got a, a genre you like more than somebody else. And um, I just don't know that most NASCAR fans find hip hop very attractive or appealing. It would be like us coming on the air and every hour or so playing, you know, jazz music. I don't, I mean, there's some talk radio listeners who listen to jazz, but it probably isn't the majority. And you got to kind of, you know, you, you super serve your audience to some um, degree. Hmm. I want to throw something out there and get your opinion on this, Rev, or okay. get our listeners' opinion, because I'm very, very curious in this. I have zero notes, zero stories. I mean, normally when I have notes and I have opinions, I've, I've validated or substantiated those opinions in some way, shape, or form with um, with things I've read, things I've um, learned, things I've explored. I have done nothing but listen to the Murdoch trial. I mean, I've not, I, I've not seen a summary. I've not seen a report. I've not watched court television or the legal network or, or read what a great lawyer from Harvard said about the, uh, the goings on. But, but I've landed here, and I want to get your take on this, and maybe some others are, are as interested in this. Uh, it, it seems to me that Alec Murdoch, whose name is pronounced Alex Murdoch, let me say that again, Alec Murdoch, whose name is pronounced Alex Murdoch, is one of these 90-10 people. 90% of the time, he's probably a good guy, good dude. 10% of the time, he's an absolute sociopath, a narcissist un, unlike anybody you've ever met that leads to socio, uh, him being a sociopath with, with the capacity to kill his wife and son. I didn't say he did. I mean, I don't have any idea if he did kill his wife and kid. We'll find out. Uh, the jury will make a verdict sooner than later. But it seems to me, from afar, making it a, kind of a judgment on some of the um, some of the witnesses, some of the information they've um, they've revealed as evidence in the trial. It seems to me he's one of these ninety ten people. Ninety percent of the time, Alex Murdoch would be a good guy for Dave Baker to get to know. I mean, he's your buddy, he's your friend. You need help with the legal system. You need help with a banker. Need help with a whatever. I mean, he's one of these um, you know, j- just an old school Southerner who likes helping people and people are indebted to him and he knows that. I mean, he kind of plays that game, um, influencing and peddling influence. And, you know, the family's had a lot of um, political and judicial influence in that part of the state for a long, long time. But 10% of the time, he is an unbridled narcissist with, with the unbelievable capacity to be sociopathic. So, see, I don't think any, and I think all of us are 90, 10 to some degree. Most of us probably 80, 20, you know, 80% of the time we're good dudes, good, 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 good ladies, you know, doing the right thing. 20% of the time we get off the beaten path. We do things. Wow. Can't believe I did that. Can't believe I thought that. Can't believe I said that, but there's a line there about, you know, what we're willing to do that, that 20% includes things we'd rather not, you know, we've done, not admit we've done, but we did it. And we've demonstrated the capacity to do those things. But, but the, the, the Alex Murdoch's of the world if he's who I think he is, that 10% of the time, there is no there is no guardrail. There is nothing he won't do to maintain influence, to maintain power, to maintain a style of life or a quality of life, a, a certain what reputation that goes along with that. And, I mean, how much have you kept up with this, Rev? I've, I've kind of read headlines and watched a little bit of the trial, uh, but not very much. Not very much. So, so what do you make of my, of my summation? Yeah, I mean, I guess I see what you're saying there. And it's, it's, I haven't, to me, if you have the capacity to kill, though, n- nothing else kind of really matters in your personality. I mean, yeah, you may have been a good dude 90% of the time or whatever, but, you know, if 
he's guilty of doing what he's accused of doing. I mean, none of that other stuff matters, right? It's the 10% we're talking about. And once again, I think we're all, I don't think anybody's 100% good and virtuous. I mean, I don't think you are. I don't think I am. I don't think anybody listening to my voice gets it right every single time. We all have the capacity to do things that, wow, man, I can't believe I did that after yeah, the yeah, fact. But but the line, I mean, but, there's, but there's a line. A line. Yeah. I mean, you don't take a loaded shotgun and point at your kid or a wife and pull the trigger unless you're sociopathic. And I think he's one of these guys that, you know, 90% of the time, he'd be a lot of fun at the tailgate, a lot of fun at a dove shoot, a lot of fun at the deer hunt. But that 10% of the time where he is, his status is in question, there is no guardrail. There is no limit. That there's nothing he won't do to maintain that whatever status he believes he's attained. Is it judicial influence? Is it political influence? Is it wealth and notoriety? I don't know. But 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 at some point in time, Ref, let's say you're an influential person with a degree of notoriety. And you get to a place in your life where you know that it's it's been fraudulent. I mean, I can't I'm not who they think I am, but I ain't killing my wife and kid. You know what I mean? I mean, I'll be embarrassed. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be found out. I'll be proven to be a fraud. But, but you know, that's that. if I've got a choice to make, kill my wife and kid or be proven a fraud and, you know, a con man, and I'll, I'll just take my medicine and do what I got to do. That guardrail is there. I think he's one of these guys that when, when, when faced with that situation, when faced with that decision, it was more important to him to be who everybody thought he was than to potentially be uh, the person that pulled the trigger and I mean, basically blew his kid's brains mm. out of his head. And once again, that's not 10% different. That's 10% sociopathic. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Chesterfield. Good morning. Good morning. I think uh, Mr. Murdahl would be the last person that I would invite to a dove shoot. I think the most damning piece of evidence that I heard is the fact that when the when the sheriff deputy got on the scene and you had uh, you had his wife and his son laying there with their heads blowed off and Alec Murdoch sitting there without one drop of blood on him. I mean, if I walked up and found my family shot down like that, the first thing I'd do is embrace them. What do y'all think about that? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. I mean, there's a lot of fishy evidence here. And you got a defense team and a, and a prosecution team, and they'll try to portray the evidence in one way or another. The, the point I'm trying to, I guess I'm psycho, and to some degree, there's a psychoanalysis here I'm trying to provide. Um, if Alex Murdoch did what he's being accused of, if he pointed a loaded um, shotgun at his kid and a loaded rifle at his wife, pulled the trigger numerous times, you know, basically, I mean, it's not just cold-blooded murder. I mean, it would be like the most gory cold-blooded murder you could ever imagine um, I mean, I get what Jeff's saying. Jeff's talking about the evidence of the case. You know, this looks this way. That looks another way. Um, some of the defense is trying to argue. Um, well, I mean, all the defense is trying to do is place a, a reasonable doubt. I mean, is, could, can we present evidence that forces the jury to consider there's a reasonable doubt he did this or not? I'm making the assumption he did. Now, that's unfair to the to, to, to murder. That's unfair to the trial. I'm making the assumption he did. Because I think he did. I mean, I don't have anything to prove that other than what I've watched, what I've read, what I've reviewed. Um, but but once again, Rev, if he did, why? And I think it's 10% sociopathic. Uh, once again, I think when, when, when Dave Baker is forced at some point in his life to reveal things he finds 
unbelievably unpleasant. Rhett's been leading a lie. I've been leading a lie. All of us at some point in time um, are confronted with difficult situations in all of our lives. And, 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 you know, let's, let's, I mean, you and I would be different examples, but I mean, Mur- the Murdoch family had, I mean, they, they've been feared that they, they had been celebrated. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they carried a big stick in that part of the state. There's no question about that. So, so either I expose myself as a fraud and I admit that everything my family has ever done up until now has been somewhat misleading, somewhat um, disingenuous or or, and, and you know, and here's what I think happened. You ready? You want me to give you the G.I. Joe with the mm-hmm. Kung Fu grip? I think that Maggie Murdoch was about to file for divorce or either had already filed for divorce and all of these shenanigans were going to be found out. In the discovery of the divorce proceedings, the majority of his financial sins, his financial crimes were going to be found out. And I think instead of going through that, he thought he could get away with killing her. Now, now here's where I get real concerned or confused. The kid, because I asked Rev Friday, and I'll ask our audience. God, I can't believe I'm saying this over the air. I'll, um, is there something different? Hmm. Is there something different about killing your wife and killing your kid? That's a heavy question at yeah, six eighteen on a Monday morning. <laughs> that is. Is there something different about killing your wife than killing your kid? If there's degrees of sin in the world, degrees of evil and human depravity in the world, is is it one and one A? Is it tied for first? I mean, if you point a gun at your wife, pull the trigger and kill her. I mean, that that is unimaginable as far as I'm concerned, but it happens. If you do the same to your child, forget God's word, for forget, you know, the scripture. I mean, I, thou shalt not murder. I mean, that's as clear. It doesn't say thou shalt not murder your wife, but there's a chance you, you know, I mean, there, there's no discrepancy there. I mean, that's as clear as can be. But from a, from a humanistic perspective, is there something different about killing your spouse than killing your kid? I mean, once again, that's heavy. That's extremely heavy on a Monday morning. I say there is. I mean, I'm crazy enough to answer my own question. <laughs> And Rev has given me credit and a little bit confusion by, dude, you, you answer things or say things that I'm not sure we benefit from saying, but we keep it real here. So, you know, I, I thought a lot about that last week as I listened to some of the, uh, some of the, I don't know, the hearings of the case. I didn't see much of it, but I listened to a good bit of it driving and riding around. And, you know, when I had a, I had a 30 minute ride three or four days last week and I'd listen uh, to the live stream while I'm driving down the road. And, um, and I asked Rev Friday before we left here, I said, I'll ask you a weird question, Rev. Um, is there a difference in killing your wife and killing your kid? It's still murder. I mean, mm-hmm. I get it. It's still capital murder. It's cold-blooded murder. I mean, it's, 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 and you can't fathom either No, one, you can't though. fathom I mean, either. Can't. But but if you get there, is there a fundamental difference? Let's go to the phone. Dale and Florence. Morning, Dale. Hey, guys. So, as a man with a wife and children... You know, I promised God that I would take care of my wife, take care of my children. Uh, you know, the old-fashioned kind of thing. The man is is the head of the house. He's the provider, blah, blah, blah. I don't know if there's a difference between a man killing his wife or his child. The one that I never could figure out was a woman that killed her children that she had, that she carried for nine months. I don't know if there's a difference between killing your wife as a man or your children, 
The other one is the one I could never figure out. But neither one of them, you know, you're talking about 10%, uh, you know, being a, a, a nutcase. It would take more than that for me, I think. I'd have to be about 75 80%. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, there's no right answer to this. There's no proper way to frame the question. But, but I considered some of this over the weekend, and I mean, that's quite, kind of where I've landed. And, and as a result of where I've landed, and once again, guys, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. I think Alec Murdoch killed his wife and kid. I do. I think he's a 90% pr- pretty good guy. 10% of the time, he's not just a bad guy. He's a sociopath. And there's nothing he won't do to maintain his status. To, to be respected and accepted as who that family is and has been for many, many, many decades. And I think when faced with the reality of a divorce hearing and proceeding that led to discovery that would find him out, so to speak, that he was indeed um, not who everybody thought he was, the, 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 the sociopath within decided to kill his wife and kid. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. Somebody texted me a second ago and said, how do you know all this? I said, I don't know all this. I'll, I'll readily admit I don't know any of this. I'm suspecting. I'm, I'm projecting. I am um, having an opinion that this is some of what is at the core of the... Uh, I mean, if, if Murdoch killed his wife and kid, he's a sociopath. That's the point I'm trying to make. And, but I don't believe he's a complete and total sociopath every second of every day. I think he's probably a good and decent guy sometimes. Um, there's been about, what, two of Paul's friends who considered him a second father and said they could have never imagined they would be in this situation or in this, in this position. There was a, a, a business associate that I watched a video of over the weekend who says, I love the guy for 30 years. I probably still love him, but I'm real angry with him for getting me in this situation, getting our business in this situation. And and what is the, I mean, the, the clinical definition of a sociopath is basically someone who cares nothing about other people. I mean, it's all about me. You know, wh- where do I end up in, in whatever tumultuous event I may find myself in, um, not, not considering other people's opinions at all or other people's, you know, um, emotions or what happens to someone else in the event um, a sociopath wouldn't mind somebody else being, you know, if this murder could be pinned on somebody, a sociopath wouldn't mind at all. They wouldn't have a guilty conscience. I mean, they, you know, a little bit, I mean, it, it goes back to narcissism, um, extreme narcissism, probably the most e- extreme narcissism imaginable, leads to some sociopathic reason that you're okay with, you know, Ken R doing something and Dave Baker getting the blame. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here is Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS Morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I want to preface my comment by reminding your audience I am a stand-up comedian. I'm also divorced, and I would be a widower if my aim was better or if I could have got her to eat the soup. Now, that's a joke. I would not kill uh, my wife. And I have kids, four great kids. Well, I have three great kids, and I got this other one, okay? Uh, he's in his twenties and still, you know, borrows money, which is translated into, can you give me money? You'll never see again. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, you ask the question, is it a difference? And, uh, and I think for a sociopath, there really is no difference because you just nailed it on the head. They don't care about anybody. And I believe that, they, that if, if your theory or hypothesis is true, then hell, 
he looked at whatever he did, if he did it, as self-preservation and self-defense, in his mind, self-defense, okay? Because if he got in all kind of trouble, it was his own fault. He should have bit the bullet and, uh, no, but I don't mean kill himself. I mean, you know, just take what was coming to him, you know, to defend or to protect his family, you know. Is there a difference? Uh, I don't, for a sociopath kid, it's not. I think for the rest of us, uh, the normal people, hell, I can't fathom that, Ken. I can't fathom taking a human life outside of self-defense or uh, in a case of capital capital punishment. So uh, I, I don't know, Ken, but you raise an interesting question. Was it self-preservation? Was it, but still, you don't kill your family. You don't kill your kids. I, I, it's it's troubling, and, and for us to be in the news over uh, something um, like this, uh South Carolina don't need this spotlight, you know. And uh, but it, it's a horrible situation, and I, I appreciate you delving into it, throwing some some stuff for us to think about because it, it is riveting. Um, it's sad. It's disturbing. Um, but but it is it is riveting to to listen to and hear. And I'm I'm glad you're taking time from the regular politics to to uh, address some of this stuff and let us let us think about it. It's, Thank it's you, Boudreaux. Disturbing as, as it is. Well, I appreciate it. That's in his neck of the woods, so to speak, or nearby his part of the country. Um, Boudreaux came up with a good word, disturbing. I mean, it is very disturbing to, to hear. Uh, I hadn't seen any of the graphics. Don't want to see any of the graphics. Um, but, but to hear, you know, the, um, the way the body's laid and, and in graphic detail, what Maggie looked like after being shot in the head, what Paul looked like after being shot in the head. And I just, I mean, Friday Rev and I were discussing, you know, trying to find, I'm still trying to find somebody to come on once a week and kind of update us in a, um, in a more informative fashion, but I've taken a lot of interest over the past weekend, you know, um, I mean, I'm just very interested in the human condition. And when you see people get on the witness stand and say, you know, I love that man. He was a good man. He was like a second father to me. I mean, there's some good there. I mean, if there, if there was no good there, nobody would stand up and say he was like a second father to me for 30 years. Those people let me stay in their homes. They, they took good care of me. Um, but but the other ten percent, once again, when when faced with a with a moment in time where you require to consider someone else's opinion, sociopaths don't. I mean, they they just don't. You know, Dave Baker. I would like to think, um, if pressed into, you know, a, a kind of a serious decision, he would take into account my opinion and, and what consequences it would have to me and community broadcasters and and the community he lives in. I mean, I think all of us are self preservationists. I mean, Dave sure. loves Dave more than he loves Ken. Ken loves Ken more than he loves Dave. But, but there's got to be some, I don't know, proportionality as to what you will do to get your way, what you yeah. will do. There's to, a line, obviously. Sure there is. I mean, absolutely there is. And for some, it's a more generous line than others. Some people are less preservationist than others. There are a few people who will do anything imaginable or unimaginable to make sure they stay where they believe they deserve to stay. And once again, I'm not a, a psychiatrist nor a psychologist, but I think it's the, um, I mean, it's one of the critical features of just extreme narcissism. I think extreme narcissism, I think the majority of sociopaths have been deemed, um, I mean, there, there's a difference between crazy, Reb. I mean, there's one thing to be mentally ill. We talked about homeless and mentally ill and addiction and lazy and no count and, and all these other sorts of things last week. I don't think that's the case. I don't think Alex Murdoch's crazy at all. I mean, unless you deem socio, uh, you know, the, the study of sociopathology, uh, you know, studying people who have mental illnesses, I don't think he's crazy a bit in this world. 
I think he's a sociopath. And once again, uh, the, the criteria for being a sociopath is disregarding anybody's opinion uh, for any degree of consideration or level of consideration. In other words, I've got to kill my wife and well, my kids. Well, and now that you mention it, those are sociopathic tendencies, I think, related to the financial crimes he's accused sure, of as well. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, I mean, taking I've, other people's settlement money. and I should be able to do anything to get my way. I mean, to make sure I'm not in harm's way, you know, and, and once again, now, now that, that conversation led to another conversation about, is there a difference in shooting your wife and kid? That's kind of a weird question to ask. And I would expect to get weird answers in relation to that. I mean, I personally think there is, I mean, I really, and truly, um, I'm not going to say, you know, my wife is not my blood, but my kid is, but you know, I, I've not, I didn't see my wife brought into the world. I mean, I love my wife with every fiber of my being, and I mean that. I mean, I love her more today than I ever have in my life because we've just kind of, you know, we're connected to the hip now, so to speak. I mean, we are as one. We've walked the road together. we fought the battles together. We've celebrated. We've cried. We've enjoyed. We've uh, we've been dis- disgusted and desperate and all these human emotions, and you build a bond with one another when you walk that road together. But But that kid, I mean, that kid, I saw that kid come into the world. I mean, that kid, I've never, that kid has never known a world that didn't consist of me. I mean, there's some, I don't want to say there's a deeper love there. Wow, that gets real heavy. You know what I mean? There's a deeper love there. There's a higher degree of affinity uh, or understanding there. Um, You know, when people get divorced, the man and the woman, I mean, the woman goes off her way. The man goes off his way. The kids are along for the ride. I mean, they're bystanders. They're, they're. I don't want to say collateral damage, but you know what I mean, Rev. They're they're just kind of caught up in the whirlwind of whatever happens to the to the to the mother and father. But I do believe. I mean, if you put yourself in Alex Murdoch's shoes and you are a narcissist, extreme narcissist, that that I think is turns into you know kind of a sociopath, and you pull the trigger and shoot your wife, is it harder to shoot your kid after you? I mean, yeah, I think it would be. But but that's once again, guys, that is a dark 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 road um to go down you know that there are others who believe and i think charles touched on this last week we didn't talk much about this but i think charles touched on ozark you know the 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 guy who's an accountant making 60 or 70 or 80 grand a year you know and he's okay ain't much to brag about but he's okay the bills are paid he goes on a vacation to myrtle beach once a year and along comes a drug cartel and says hell if you help this clean if you'll help us clean this money you won't imagine the degree of wealth. And and once he makes that decision to do what? The first, uh, you know, once he makes the first deal, he's in for life. I mean, that's not, you know, hey, can I get out now? You know, I've cleaned, you know, $100 million for you drug cartels. Can I get out of this deal now? No, I mean, you're in for life once you do that. So you might as well enjoy the private jets and, you know, uh, fancy vacations and living a life um, void of any financial turmoil. And, you know, there, there's a little bit of me that says, are we eventually going to see a Chinese oligarch and a Mexican drug cartel enter the equation? I don't have any idea. Uh, I don't think we're investigating that now, are we? I mean, are we, we're not necessarily investigating the majority of financial crimes. I think they've been allowed to be circumstantial evidence to, to basically paint a picture of why a guy like this could be so desperate to kill his wife and his kid insurance money and i mean i I just that's my theory i mean once again i don't have any 
anything to substantiate my theory on other than eh, just kind of, I don't know, hearing about things and seeing. It seems to me that they were going to get a divorce and the divorce proceeding and discovery was going to lead to uh, revelations and findings that proved Alex Murdoch was not who he said he was. And a sociopath like Murdoch is not going to allow that to happen, even if it means killing your wife and your child. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, one of the more interesting points to be made in the Murdoch trial, as far as I'm concerned, is the guilty beyond a reasonable doubt or guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, to me, those are two different things. Guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. How many people have ever been convicted that didn't admit the crime guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt? I mean, a reasonable doubt is one thing, right? And I guess it's Hartputlian's job to introduce information that convinces the jury there is a reasonable doubt to believe that this guy did not do what he's being accused of. Um, is it impossible in today's world to be guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, as polarizing as we are, as as divided as we are, you got a, a guy that works a construction job in South Carolina. You know what lawyers think of him. You got an African-American from the inner city. You know what uh, lawyers think of him when they start picking these juries. There are certain profiles that they pay close attention to. So if you're willing, I mean, if you're able as the defense and the uh, and the prosecution to pick a jury, I mean, how do you pick a jury that agrees beyond a shadow of a doubt? I well, mean, the, the only thing that'll be working in your favor in that case, if you're trying to prove that, is there's so many people have video. So if you have video of it, well, I mean, oh yeah, and you I mean, see that, a crime. You're that's right. beyond I mean, the shadow if, of a if doubt. But but if but once again, if it's circumstantial evidence, right. Or you're building a case, you know, with, with this absence of, of that it, type yeah, of absence of a yeah. um, I mean, even a murder weapon, you know, with DNA and all these other sorts of things, it's just very interesting. Um, to watch the system uh, play itself out, to watch a high-profile trial that a lot of people in South Carolina are paying close attention to, um, and some aren't. I mean, some could care less what's happening down there. But there's so much psychoanalysis that I think is going – I went into last week, you know, and, and without calling it psychoanalysis, that's exactly what it is, trying to paint a picture of a guy who's – um. And I don't know if it's 90, 10, 80, 20. I don't have any idea. I don't know Alec Murdoch. don't have any idea what kind of dude he is at a tailgate or a ball game or, or anything like that. But he, for all practical purposes, Rev, lived a very um, uh, communal and, and you know, a social life. I mean, he was very um, involved in the affairs of that part of the state uh, with the Trial Lawyers Association. I mean, I've seen the guy at some Gamecock basketball games. I mean, he and his family would be at Gamecock basketball games when I'd go occasionally. Um, and so, so it's not like he was a recluse or some guy who, you know, was, um, ah, what am I trying to say here? What Ted Kaczynski. You know what I mean? He, he was not a dude that went off the grid and had all these issues. And, I mean, he was managing his life. It appeared to be managing his life in a very normal sort of fashion. I'm doing the things that most of us do. But, but somewhere embedded in that psyche, I guess, was the capacity to do something um, that very few of us would have the capacity to do. I understand, um, you know, cr cr crime in the heat of the moment. I understand self-defense. I mean, I think Boudreaux talked a little bit earlier about, you know, taking a loaded gun. We, we said this a couple of weeks ago. 
the one thing that I think these open carries and 2A voters and 2A Second Amendment rights enthusiasts, the one thing I don't think they consider enough, and I'm not being, um, you know, I'm not being lecturing to the Second Amendment folks, but I think it, the, the one responsibility of carrying a gun that very few people ever think of is, am I willing to at any point in time in my life point this loaded gun and take another person's life? And when do I decide it's appropriate or not? You, you, I mean, you're not in a war. I mean, it's not okay. good guys, bad guys. It's not us versus them. I mean, it's you living your life in the most uh, random way imaginable, and all of a sudden, you're, you're in, you encounter a situation, and, and I've heard it said this way. You know, I, was, I, was, I encountered a situation where, where I was the person that had to do something, and I wish someone else had done it. So, so I believe that if you are you know, a a weapon carrier and you've been certified and you've been, you know, vetted to be authorized to carry a weapon. What is the, um, what do you do in that moment in time when you're the one who has to pull the trigger to make everyone else safe? I mean, that, that's a heavy weight. And once again, I think it's, um, you hope it never happens, but it does. We saw in a, um, at a cafe recently where a, um, a concealed weapons carrier killed, you know, the perpetrator of a crime and I mean, it freaked everybody in there out, but they got their money back. The, um, the vigilant, um, was dead and, uh, I mean, kind of, it got real aggressive there at the end. Uh, anyway, eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven is our number rambling about on a, um, on a Monday morning. I'm trying to not talk about the spy balloon. Oh, I was wondering how long <laughs> until, it was going to take. Until I did like, it on purpose. I why, don't want to talk about why the spy. are you resisting? Well, I mean, it, it's not the first time <laughs> we fired a shot off the coast of South Carolina toward a repressive regime. Um, you know, our history is full of taking care of repressive regimes. And I thought about that when, um, yeah, Washington, I think my tweet said, China may have Washington in its back pocket. But it ain't got South Kakalaki. <laughs> South Kakalaki's famous for um, firing the shot against the repressive regime <laughs> when given funny. half an opportunity. 843-661-0937. I don't know what to make of that. I was wondering how long it was going to take. I, I just had a feeling you were resisting on purpose. I was, because that's been the, the story of all. And I wasn't going to bring it up until you did. I mean, everybody had a video. <laughs> you know, everybody had a picture. Everybody. Oh, yeah. It went right over. Uh, oh, yeah. Right overhead. I had a buddy of mine said, hey, man, I'm in Lamar. This this weather balloon, this uh, this uh, this uh, spying balloon is over Lamar. And I said, well, that's where all the key secrets are kept. You know, and I'm sure they'll leave there and go to Pamplico. That's where the other secrets are kept uh, as it regards to national. I don't know what to make of that. I don't have any idea. Um, I've heard that we scrambled its uh, its capacities as it was flying over America. Um, we waited until it got off the coast because the debris field was going to be seven miles. Uh, that's what Pete Buttigieg said yesterday on Meet the Press. It flew over Alaska. I mean, there's some sparsely populated areas in Alaska that I think you could have shot. I don't have any idea why we thought that was normal. You know, the question this morning is, what if, I mean, the media, did, 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 we, did anybody know about this? I mean, I'm understanding now that American intelligence said they knew the middle, excuse me, the beginning of last week that it was going to eventually make its way over Alaska, which is a, you know, it's one of our 50 states. And then uh, kind of come into the northwest part of America, uh, Montana, I think, was when we first got notified. Mm-hmm. It was a local reporter yeah. in Montana. Billings, Montana, yeah. I think. It did the, um, the local media reported on this UFO 
that was later identified as a Chinese um, spy balloon. I mean, I'm just thinking about in the era of drones and satellites. Why do we have a a balloon? You know, doing doing the dirty work of of the Chinese Communist Party. I don't have any idea what what to make of that. Um, it, there there are conflicting stories out there about whether or not there were three that made their way over the continental United States when President Trump was president. Um, you know, I think Radcliffe has denied that. Uh, Pompeo has denied that. A couple of other officials within the government have denied um, any of that. It's it's not a funny story. I'm not making light of it, but it is kind of weird that, you know, a Chinese balloon flew from, uh, what, Alaska to Surfside Beach, South Carolina. And we, you know, th- there were visuals of it from Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as it made its way across, I think it was, what, 50,000 feet above sea level, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, the flying altitude was somewhere around 50,000 50 feet. 50 to 60. Yeah, 50 to 60. To put in perspective, the normal jetliner is 35-ish, right, Rev? Yep. I mean, the normal steel tube with five, 500 people on it is at about 35,000 feet. This was another fifteen to 20,000 feet um, higher than that. What was it doing what is the effect or impact on the Biden administration? I don't have any idea. Marco Rubio said yesterday the intelligence community will be briefed today when he gets back to Washington to find out, excuse me, the National Security Commission Committee will be briefed today. Uh, we shall see. Back in a few. Yeah, South Kakalaki said, if you don't believe we'll take care of these repressive regimes, we've done it before, we'll do it again. <laughs> you may make your way across the continental United States from sea to shining sea, but once you get clear of, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't have any idea. I mean, it really and truly, it's not a funny story. I'm not trying to make light of it, but, but it's interesting that it ended up where South Carolina was the one forced to, or it happened in. It's not. It's the federal government. I mean, I heard, I read some things over the weekend. Well, South Carolina took care of it. No, the federal government took care of it. It just happened to be off the coast of South right. Carolina, where some pretty interesting things have happened <laughs> in the history of our country. And I was thinking about uh, Russell Fry, who, of course, uh, came on the show Friday, and he, he got a little attention because this is his district, and therefore Fox News had him on, on I think, uh, Friday evening and again on Saturday morning on Fox & Friends. So he, he got to make his uh, comments because this is his congressional district. So good there for you Russell. Go. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Rick in Sumter listening to WDXY. Morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Listen, I might be out of the loop on this, but this thing entered our airspace in Alaska, right? Correct. So there was either a very large Chinese vessel in the Bering Strait, or, if my geography is correct, it also traversed the length of Russia. And they're usually pretty proprietary about their airspace. So were they involved in it? Did they allow it to cross their airspace or launch from Russia? You know, Sarah Palin said you can see Russia from her front yard. That's interesting because, Rick, I don't – did it traverse through Russian airspace? Do we know that for sure? I have no idea. See, and I don't either. I know it went over Canada because Trudeau's – you know, he's talking about what we what he should have done and what he would have done if given the uh, given the opportunity. I think it – well, I mean, so so how far it is – how far is it from China to, um, to Alaska? Anybody know that? Do you, Rick? I don't. Well, I, I mean, it's the entire length of Russia. If it goes from anywhere in central China – um, it goes across Siberia, Eurasia, and across the entire length of Russia. But there is, so, so is there any way for the balloon to leave Asia or leave China and come to Alaska without going across 
some land mass of Russia? Not that I can think of. Okay, that's interesting. And, I, and I'm not as – um. Well, it could, but it would be highly unusual, wouldn't it? Yes, sir. Okay. Good deal. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Getting a kind of a geography lesson here this morning. So it's, and that's um, a really good question, too. Yeah, because I, did it just float over Russia and they didn't do anything about it? Or were they in cahoots? Well, of course, Russia and China's in cahoots. <laughs> of course they are. Nobody would ever deny that. But I don't know the path. I mean, who does know the path? The, the only path I'm familiar with is when it when it entered American airspace over Alaska, it then traversed across western Canada, and I think it re-entered the United States somewhere around Montana on Thursday. And then it kind of bobbed and weaved. How much of this is manned? I mean, how much is controlled by man, and how much of it is um is all about the wind, the jet stream, the wind currents, and the prevailing forces? Was there any control uh, of the vehicle or vessel or, or balloon? I mean, whatever you want to call it. Um the spy balloon, the infamous spy balloon that was shot down in Dirty Myrtle um, Saturday Dirty morning Myrtle. by the federal by the federal government. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Breeze is next. Good morning. North Korea, North Vietnam. They're on the Chinese border. It could have very easily crossed right over Japan, for that matter. But the but the real issue is this. It did, you know. I may be mistaken here, but it didn't appear like they did any real effort to conceal it. I hear people say they're hard to find, but I've seen reports they noticed it over Japan. But they certainly knew about it in time to stop it before it even got to the continental U.S. to do any of the things that they did they were doing. But here's the question, though, really. Cannot the satellites they have do pretty much the same job? And with all the spies that they they have here in the country, don't they pretty much know that stuff? Not to mention all of the traitors we have working for the government that they're buddies with. I think that the balloon was more of a, it'd be like me calling you up and say, hey, kid, I'm going to go take a crap in your front yard at 12 noon Sunday. There ain't nothing you can do about it. And then I do it, and then I go and turn around and blame you for me doing it. So how dare you? I mean, that's what they're doing. They're punking us more than anything. They basically tell us that they basically telegraph a balloon flying all the way across the Pacific Ocean, flies all the way across the country. Then once it has done its job, instead of sending us a thank you letter, thanking us for letting them do whatever they wanted to do, and then shooting it down after the balloon was worthless to them because they'd already gotten all the data off of it. It wasn't like they had to retrieve the balloon to get the data. You know, it was getting sent to them in real time unless they were able to block it, which they probably were. But the biggest thing was they just pumped us. It's just like they got in our face and said, what you going to do about it? We said, nothing. So here's the real question is, what are they going to do about it? The Chinese are talking about retaliating against us for shooting down a spy balloon that they flew over our country. Now, that is, I don't know if the Democrats are using the Chinese Communist playbook or the Chinese Communists are using the Democrat Communist Fascist playbook, but they both sound pretty damn familiar, don't they, Hoss? They sure do. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. I want to make sure I get my geography straight. Here's what I do know. So, so Russia's to the north of China, correct? 
Yes. Yeah. The, the mm-hmm. former Soviet Union included um, Kazakhstan and all these other stands, which nobody knows anything about. But they're, they, you know, since the Soviet Union dissolved, you've got Russia, you, you've got a lot of other, what was it, Mongolia, I think is in there somewhere. And then off to the, um, off to the, to the Alaska side of China, you've got the Korean Peninsula, right? You got North and South Korea. To the, to further toward Alaska, <laughs> you've got um, Japan. So if it did fly from China, it would have had to loop beneath the Korean peninsulas. I'm uh, talking about North and South and Japan. So if it did leave China, to Rick's point, if it left China and went directly to Alaska, it would have flown over Russia. If it didn't fly directly over, excuse me, if it didn't fly directly to Alaska, in other words, if it went a little bit to the, that would have been the east. Uh, yeah, that would have been to the east, the east toward Alaska. And it and it goes below the Korean Peninsula. It goes below China. Because I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, once again, I don't, I don't know all those um, stands that formerly the Soviet Union. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you've got, I mean, I know you got Russia north of China. I mean, I know that. And you got Siberia, you know, uh, where, where it's almost uninhabitable for for the most part. Toward the um, that would be the North Pole. So you've got Russia, and then you've got Mongolia, and then you've got China. And coming off to the east of China, you got the Korean Peninsula, which includes North and South. And then to the here I go, Rev. You ready? Mm-hmm. To the right of that, which is to the <laughs> to the east of that, you've got um, Japan. So it either flew from China under the korean peninsula and japan or as rick said it leaves the mainland china and goes across russia into alaska i mean i don't know that that matters unless china had some sort of authority to allow the balloon the spy balloon to make its way across some of the uh, some of the areas of russia and once again i don't have any idea what part of russia that would have been i mean if it leaves china and, and kind of goes due due northeast well that would have been yeah due northeast it would have had to go over some part of Russia, but I have no idea what any of those towns or provinces or or cities would have been or did it kind of swing low sweet chariot and go under the Korean Peninsula and uh, and Japan as well. And generally, I, my my interpretation is the balloons go where the wind takes it, right? But then I started to think, well, if it navigated its way through this complicated path without going over some of these other countries, did they have a way to steer it well, and, and control it? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I've not heard anybody reveal an answer to that. Um, the, the only thing I know that it randomly made its way near our military um, installations. I mean, there's a big base in Montana. There's a big base. Randomly or well, I mean, not well, I mean, that's where I'm headed. I mean, the wind just happened to be blown near uh, some of the ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Sites. Uh, some of the guys this morning were talking about how it, um, you know, it just, it would ebb one way and ebb another. I don't have any idea what's controlling it. I mean, I guess China wants us to believe that the jet stream, I mean, they were helpless and, you know, it would have been irresponsible to believe that they were up to no good. <laughs> it just happened to be a balloon that got away. My, my better question is, why in 2023, with the advanced technology of America and the United States, excuse me, America and China, are we using balloons to spy on one another? Now, now Rev said it earlier, this balloon was at about 55 to 60,000, somewhere between 50 and 60,000 feet. So it's not like you take a 30 alt six sitting on the back porch in Pamplico 
and shoot it down. I mean, that's a long way up there. No idea how big the balloon was. Do we have any idea, Reb, how no. big uh, in diameter or circumference the balloon was? I've not heard any of that. All I know is this. This state that I live in is famous for shooting and beginning uh, repressive regimes go to die off the coast of South Kakalaki. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here's Jeffrey in Scranton. Good morning. Uh, morning, guys. Uh, I'm obviously not a, not in a position to you know, say I know like 100%, but it just kind of seems like this could be one of those stories just kind of designed to tie up the news cycle and distract us from other things. Um, I want to say it was the day before the the whole balloon narrative kind of took hold of the headlines. You know, the Pentagon releases a video on their main website talking about the bio lab of the DOD was funding in Ukraine. And then the very next day, there's balloons in the sky, and that's all anybody's talking about. You know, not saying that it's not real, just odd timing, I guess, is all makes me suspicious. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. A little um, distraction yeah. is what the caller is arguing. 843. It did kind of pull the headlines away from classified documents. But I mean, if, if, but, but think of this. But if you're the Biden administration, what story's worse? Right. That, that a spy balloon is flying from one side of the nation to the other or across the country, and um, and after it gets out over the ocean, it's shot down. I mean, what is that really a, a story that you want? In other words, if you're distracting from one story, would you want to distract toward a story that includes a Chinese spy balloon? Uh, I don't know that I would. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Rodney and Florence. Good morning, Rodney. Yes, sir. If you want to get some trouble and get shot, you come to South Cat, which is what the Chinese balloon did. Thank you, Rodney. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is our number. I mean, I'm being a bit, obviously being a bit humorous talking about uh, the repressive regimes and the um, the shots that have been fired uh, on the South Carolina coast in regards to um, to dealing with or, conf- you know, confronting repressive regimes. The South Carolina Navy didn't do this. <laughs> you know, the South Carolina Army didn't do this. The federal government was in charge of disposing or dispensing of uh, the balloon. It was just pretty odd to me, Rev, that, and, and you know, there, there's some thought out there that, you know, wonder if the government was going to see whether the public found it or not. Because the first I heard about it was a reporter in Billings, Montana. And, and if I'm not mistaken, there's a hotline that a news service has in Billings, Montana, and two or three people called in the hotline and said, hey, man, we're, we see a UFO. And the, the reporter, doing what reporters do, try to get to the bottom of it. And, and I guess Rev reached out to somebody at the Pentagon or National Defense, and they informed the reporter that it was a Chinese um, spy balloon that had gotten unkiltered or, you know, uh, left abandoned, so to speak, and was making its way harmlessly and hopelessly across the United States of America. I just don't trust much of anything the Chinese. I mean, if the Chinese say it's blue, I assume it's red. If the Chinese say it's raining, I assume it's clear. Now, here I go with the Chinese again. Remember <laughs> Friday, I lectured the people about careful with the Russians and the Chinese, the Chinese government, the Communist Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party is who I'm saying when I uh, just kind of loosely identify everybody as the Chinese. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Morning, Mike. Hey, 
Uh, good morning. Um, I, I, just a quick geography review. Uh, according to the published maps that I, I've seen, uh, it looks like uh, it went uh, over uh, south of Japan, somewhere around Okinawa there, and uh, looped right up straight up toward the Aleutians and uh, came back down and seemed to tag every major uh, nuclear installation it could get to on the way down. But uh, the situation with that that balloon, you can control balloons, uh, their course by altering altitude. It could go from 10,000 to 120,000 feet, you know, basically 20 miles high. There, uh, there, uh, the, uh, I don't know if it, it is 20 miles, but, but it's uh, got to be on up there. But that that thing uh, could alter course because there's all kinds of counter currents in the atmosphere. So they could direct it pretty much where they wanted it to go, and I think it went exactly where they wanted it to go. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. I read <laughs> – careful. What you, I mean, I read 100 different things about it. and It's not funny. I'm not trying to make light of it. But I read – what I had read over the weekend was that the balloon was disabled by the American military. The American military had scrambled some of the signal processing that the Chinese controlled the balloon by. Now, now here's here's my problem. You ready? I don't trust Beijing, and I don't trust Washington. I'm sorry. Right. I don't trust Moscow. I don't trust Kiev. Um, Who do you trust? Name a national capital that I trust. Um very few. In fact, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But I guess if I had to list the most untrustworthy capitals in the world, Beijing would be close to the top. But Washington would also be um, close to the top. The only thing you and I believe is they're the good guys. You know, Washington is the good guys. They're the cavalry coming to help aid and assist uh, the American public. But once again, when you got Beijing and Washington having competing narratives, the smart thing to do is probably not believe what either side is saying. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Okay, we're not going to the phone. Let's take a break. Got a call ringing. We'll go to the phone as soon as we get back from this pay our bills session. See, I think this is a, um, I think this is something to distract us. I think the Chinese are trying to convince us that all they have is uh, balloons that float around um, under the control of some, I don't know, some Chinese operative when in fact they've got these advanced satellites in low orbit orth, um, or excuse me, low Earth orbits that are far more effective at spying on whatever it is they, they need to spy on. Um, the bird's eye images of some of the um, intercontinental ballistic missile facilities in America. Uh, so, so yes, I think the Chinese are trying to convince us, hey, the best we can do is hot air balloons with cameras. Um, when indeed we know that Beijing has very capable advanced satellites in some of these um, low Earth orbits that spy on pretty much everything America does. How else do you think they uh, steal our intellectual properties? (laughs) Let's go to the phone. Here's Cocky Mike. Morning, Mike. Good morning, guys. Let me ask you this. Can y'all hear me okay with my earbuds in? Do I need to pull over and put the phone up? We hear you good. We got you. I'm sorry. Say again? We got you. Apparently, you can't hear us do it. <laughs> okay, good deal. Good deal. Well, I'm on I-95, so it's a lot of road noise. Let me let me go ahead and kind of start correcting some of your 
your theories or some of your information on Murdoch. I have followed this. Uh, how, do, how do you correct the theory? Ah, well, see, <laughs> I, I, when I finish, when I finish, you'll understand. Okay, fair enough. I've been following this since, since day one, okay? Okay. Which has been over almost going on two years. I listen every week to two different podcasts, Impact of Influence with with um, uh, Seton, uh, Tucker, and Matt Harris. And the other one is, I uh, forget the name of it, but it's Mandy Matley. Mandy Matley worked for Fitz News, and she actually, she can literally be credited for breaking this whole thing open because she was digging through court files. I got to give her credit. I hate her voice. I don't like her condescending attitude and all that stuff. But she really she put a lot of information out. Now, your theory is that his world was coming to crashing down, and so he decided to kill his wife and child. The problem with that is Alex Murdoch had been stealing from clients since I think the first one they found went back to 2015. He had been stealing from clients since 2015. He basically had a Robin Peter to pay Paul. He stole some money from one of them to pay some bills or do whatever. And then he would take from one settlement and pay the settlement that he should have already paid. And then it kept escalating and the snowball kept getting bigger. On the morning of the murders, okay, and this is where I have a problem with your theory. On the morning of the murders, the CFO of CF, uh, a CMPED, which is the law firm that they work for, the CFO approached Alex at Alex. Where is the check that came from the the the, the disbursement sheet shows a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar check? Where's that check? We don't have any record of it. Now he was only questioned about one check in one settlement. Now Alex, being the narcissist that he is, easily knew he could probably try to lie his way out of that, and that's it. That's all it was. He had done a co-counsel with his buddy. Of the Wilson fella, and when the Wilson fella got that multi-million dollar check, Alex's part of it was seven. I believe these numbers are right, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, he got Wilson to write the check to him instead of right making it out to the law firm. Okay, so right there he started stealing from his own law firm. Um, so the C, the the chief financial officers questions Alex, "Where's this check? We don't have any record of it." And then, while they were in that meeting, Alex gets a phone call that the father was had just been rushed to the hospital. He'd taken a bad turn, and he was in bad shape, and they were putting him in ICU. So Alex left. So that whole thing was very it, – it was too early. Nobody knew anything about all these other tens of tens – you know, I think – I don't even know what they're at now, the number of times he's stolen from people. None of that came out for months and months and months. So at the on the morning of the murders, the only thing Alex was faced with was coming up with an excuse or a lie to cover himself on one single check. So to say that he took that and knew his world was coming crashing down enough that he would plan a murder, and by the way, he – he actually must have planned it pretty good because as of right now, if I was on the guilt, I mean, I was on the uh, verdict, uh, the jury, my verdict would be not guilty. Why is that, Mike? Why would your verdict be not guilty? 
the state has come nowhere close to 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 proving their case. They have presented. I could sit on your show for four hours and 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 talk about this. But do you, you know, think he killed his wife and kid? I think he's involved. I'm not sure that he pulled the trigger, and if he did, he was only one of two shooters. Ken Ard, you dove hunt, right? You shoot a shotgun. Right? I have before. Okay. How many times have you ever seen anything but a right-handed shotgun in your life? You ever run across somebody had a left-handed, where the, the shell rejected to the left? No. Nope. Okay. The, the, the case, that sled, I've got a copy of the sled drawing. They make a complete drawing, and they use reference points to say what was here and how far from this. Well, their drawing is not the scale. So old cocky Mike, who uses Google SketchUp to draw kitchens and bathrooms, I drew the crime scene to exact scale, to exactly what they say. The two bodies were 32 feet apart. Paul... Paul was found with his right foot in the feed room and then his body facing out of the door, okay? And he was his first shot was bird shot, and uh, it was to his right side, and it came up through with not in his arm. His arm was raised and up through and into his chest, and that was the death blow. And then the second shot was a number four steel shot which anybody knows that hunts that steel shots what you use for dogs because you have to it's, it's federally mandated and the second shot hit him in the back of the head and literally took off everything but his face it was I, i'm i'm told by somebody that i talked to a lot about this online that it she seen the picture is really gruesome okay there's no the shells were found if you're looking at the door to this five by ten feed room the door opens to the left and bangs against the wall. The shells were found under the door on the left-hand side. How do shells get there with a right-handed shotgun? That means somebody had to be in the feed room and shot him from inside the feed room. The shells were ejected and landed by the door. The sled is trying to tell you that the, the shooter was outside and shot into the room but the body was up. The first, the first shot, the wadding of the shell was inside Paul's body. That's how close he was when he shot. See, Maggie was 32 feet apart. If Alex was involved, there was somebody laying in wait in the feed room. Could be Cousin Eddie. We'll find out Wednesday when he testifies what his involvement is. He's actually in protective custody right now, so I think he's going to have something damaging to say. But who in the world would take two different guns to a mass murder? You know what I mean? There's so many things to say. But the theory that Alex's world was falling apart enough that he needed to kill his family and child that day, that very day, I, I don't buy it. There's just there's only one check involved at this time. So, But there's a lot to this thing, and I have followed it, and I streamed this, this court all day, every day, um, while I work, and it's boring because the introduction of evidence is is tedious and slow, and there is no matlock where somebody throws that one piece of evidence and I everybody says ooh and ah, that, that just ain't happening. It's so, but the state has yet to show 
definitive proof. It's just like Maggie's phone. They had all these these testimony from phone experts. Maggie's phone recorded his very last movement ever, ever, a mile and a half away from Alex at almost the exact same time, within the 45-second range of the exact same time Alex's phone connected to his car sitting in his driveway. See, that right there was damning to me. Now, I, I don't completely absolve Alex of involvement, but he's not charged with conspiracy to commit murder. He's charged with two counts of murder and two counts of using a weapon in the in the process of a murder. See what I mean? Yep. So I, I'm not sold yet. I'm sorry. And, I got you. And there's, a, there's a Facebook group that I, I'm very, very active in, and I did a I did this little thing, okay, at the end of week two, what's your guilty scale on zero, meaning he's Mother Teresa, 10, meaning uh, I'll pull the trigger for the state. And about, I'd say about 40% of the people who responded, responded on their scale, there were like four or five. They've not been proven either, so... But that's it. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. That, that, That's a good update. That's from another perspective. Um, I'll address what I said earlier this morning. And and mine's simply a theory. I mean, I've listened to probably four or five days. I've probably listened to a total of seven or eight hours of testimony and and evidence and, you know, the processes of the trial. Mike has listened uh, to a lot more than I. The only reason... And, and, and but, but my argument centers on the fact that I think Alex is one of, and I think Rev agreed with me this morning when I said this, none of us are all good or all bad. I mean, can we agree to that? I mean, nobody, including yours truly, is all good or all bad. I'd like to consider myself in totality a pretty good dude, but I accept that I have some humanistic blind spots. I mean, there are things I'm capable of doing and saying and acting upon that I wish weren't the case. But I know that about me. I know at times, Rev, I've allowed myself to execute in some of those fashions. Um, I regret it. I wish it weren't the case. But that's the sin nature of man. I'm no different than you. You're no different than anybody else. We all have capabilities and capacities that we wish we didn't. You have the ability to lie, cheat, and steal. You have the ability to hurt your fellow man. You've demonstrated some of those abilities at times in your life. Alex is, I think, a sociopath. I think 90% of the time, Alex is probably a pretty good guy. Pretty good guy to go hunting with, lets you um, ride around on Moselle, um, you know, helps you get a Carolina football ticket, uh, helps you if you get yourself in a, in a particular judicial predicament. I mean, the family, you know, was very influential in that regard down there. But I think, by and large, Alec was uh, good to Paul's friends, probably good to Paul, probably good to Maggie to some degree. But I think the 10% of Alex was not like the 10% of most of us. We're not sociopathic. We have the ability to do things we regret and don't think we have the capacity to do. But the very few of us have the ability to pull a trigger aimed at your wife and child. I think Alex did. I think Alec Murdoch killed his wife and kid, Mike Dutton. Well, I don't know that Mike said he doesn't. He just doesn't believe there's evidence enough to convict him of that yet. Um, the reason that I'm arguing the, 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 the Maggie situation and the divorce, Mike's right. I mean, there's certain information that was revealed and certain information that we didn't know. He had been stealing from his law firm for a long time in a very methodical and, and diabolical way. 
when you ask for a divorce, there's going to be discovery. There's going to be proceedings. There's going to be information gathered. And I think Alex knew that. He knew that there was going to be a lot of information that the courts were going to ask for or Maggie's attorneys were going to ask for, and it was going to find him out. Once again, there was one document that we knew of on that day. Mike's right about that. There were a lot of other things that we didn't know, but we're going to find out if indeed Maggie filed for divorce, discovery began, and lawyers did what you would expect lawyers to do when you think you're dealing with a real wealthy man and family. I mean, where's the money? I mean, if Alec Murdoch has a 1,700-acre plantation, a house at Edisto Beach, and lives like a king, where's all the money? Where did the money come from? I mean, he didn't make this much money. Where did the money come from? And I think there was going to be a discovery process that was going to prove him to be exactly who he knew he was, a, a cheat and a thief. And I think the, the, the sociopath and Alec Murdoch said, instead of me going down, I'll kill my wife. Now, once again, I think the majority of us would say guilty is charged. I mean, it's been a big lie. Bernie Madoff didn't kill his wife and kids, Right. I mean, as diabolical as Bernie Madoff was, he didn't kill his wife and kids. I mean, he died in prison. Alec Murdoch killed his wife and kid. I think. I don't know that. Once again, I want to be careful here. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to pass judgment. I'm just theorizing on what I think happened and, and why I think he's capable of doing that. Because once again, what is a sociopath? They are someone who considers other people's positionings or or standing or opinions or or feelings zero none doesn't matter i am the extreme narcissist that doesn't have those guardrails that most of us do have let's go to the phone 843-661-0937 make it hard on rev i'm sorry sorry right. let's go there bruce and sumter listening to wdxy morning bruce good morning uh the the murdoch trial you know I don't know whether he killed his wife and, and son. I would hope not. But, again, you know, that's up to, to the jury. But your last caller kind of bothered me in, in some of the details that were mentioned. You know, I don't know that all those details that they mentioned were out for public knowledge. Uh, well, maybe, maybe. I don't know. But if I had heard those and I was sitting on the, on the jury, that would bring up reasonable doubt or that would probably give me cause to ask for a mistrial. I'm, I'm no lawyer. I don't pretend to be, but just some of the, the information that they had access to that they gave to us uh, was kind of um, not suspicious, but uh, I, I don't think it needed to be out there. And, and that's all I'll say. You guys have a great week. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. I was going to say, Mike called back to say there was no evidence that she had talked to a divorce attorney. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not doubting that. I just think if, if she files for divorce, there's going to be discovery. During the discovery, they're going to find out a lot of things that they didn't know at that moment in time. That's my point. Once again, that's a theory. I don't know that I'm right. I certainly don't know uh, that that's the truth. That's just, that's what I think may have happened. And so that, that's what I think may have happened. <laughs> that means I'm not real sure You're what right. happened. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. What is a reasonable doubt? I mean, is, an, is a reasonable doubt easily defined or is a reasonable doubt different for Dave Baker than it is, you know, somebody sitting on the trial in Walterboro um, considering whether or not, I mean, can you sit on a jury on a murder trial and believe the person did it, but, but also have not been, or 
not being presented with enough evidence to remove any doubt you may have. In other words, you're 90% sure. Is 90% sure? Is 10% doubt reasonable doubt? Is 20% doubt that's a reasonable up, And that's doubt. up to each individual It's very juror. subjective. I mean, it's very, very, very right? subjective. I mean, we don't have a scale that says, hey, if you're 90% sure, that 10% left is not a reasonable doubt. I mean, that's a shadow of a doubt or beyond a shadow of a doubt. But your job is to beyond a reasonable doubt. What is a reasonable doubt? I'm sure there's a legal description that a judge would instruct the jury to follow in making that decision. I would imagine, right? but, yeah. but it doesn't matter. I mean, you're, okay, let's say that Dave Baker sits on the trial and the judge instructs you what a reasonable doubt is. You've still got this, this introspection that, that has to take place. I mean, you're, you're there as who you are. You're there to make a judgment or pass judgment on, you know, based on who you are. How do you discern? How do you, um, how do you digest information? How, how do you, how do you ingest information? How do you say, wow, I mean, you know, that, that kind of blew me away there. Wow. There's a, um, there, there's a nugget of information in the defense's side or defense's corner. There's some other in the, in the prosecution corner. Um, I mean, it's a very imperfect way. Jay Jordan talks a lot about applying justice. It's hard. I mean, it's one of the most important things our, our government does. I mean, our government applies whether you go to jail or not, whether you're um, penalized or punished for this crime or not. And I think subjectivity is always going to be a part of that. And I want to be crystal clear that, that mine is, a, is, a, is simply an hypothesis. I mean, I, I don't know enough about this case. I've not studied the issues enough. I've not asked for more evidence, more information as a member of a jury. Um, how many jurors are, are that devoted to being you know, ah, particular in the way they gather information and understand the information. What about the strong-willed man or woman on a jury that have the ability to kind of twist arms and lean on people to convince them that their way is the right way? I mean, there's a human dynamic here that is inescapable. It's going to exist. It always has, and it always will. And I think it's one of the most intriguing. When this is played out in real time, especially being a South Carolinian, and it's played out in South Carolina. Once again, it's a horrific crime. It's unimaginable that anybody would do that, whether it's Murdoch or not. It's unimaginable that anybody would, you know, blow the brains out of a 22-year-old kid uh, and his mom. I mean, that's 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 horrific, unimaginable, um, what whatever you want to call that, evil, wicked, um, diabolical, maniacal. I mean, there there are a lot of words that apply there, but but we're you know we're not deciding how diabolical it was. We're trying to figure out who did it. And the reason that we're talking about Murdoch's financial situation that may, the defense, or excuse me, the prosecution believes that may have been some of the motivation for why he decided to do what he did. It was not that he hated his wife to the point of wanting to, you know, blow her face off or hated his, his kids to the point of wanting to blow his brains out. It was self-preservation. And how many of us are extreme narcissistic enough to allow, you know, the, 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 the psychopath within to, to basically do that in the name of, you know, making sure my life stays intact. Mike's talking about, um, you know, the information we knew at the time. I, I'll agree with what Mike said. I just think as we discovered more, if there is indeed a divorce and we discover more during the divorce, you're going to find out that Alex Murdoch's not who he said he was. And I just don't think he was ever going to allow that to to take place. Now we'll find out if he beats a murder charge or not. He's already been found guilty or will be found guilty of a lot of these financial crimes. I mean, there's no question about it. And I think Charles a couple of weeks ago said, you know, he's going to spend the rest of his life 
as a convicted murderer or a financial crimester? I mean, one or the other. Let's go to the phone. We got a minute or so. Yep. Pat Let's... in Florence. Hello, Pat. Good morning, guys. I have uh, on a Monday morning there. Uh, there's a whole lot of confusion around that trial, too. And I think now they got maybe two shotguns in there and a Benelli and a, uh, something else. And, um, I don't know. You kill your son with a shotgun, and then you set the shotgun down and get the rifle and uh, and shoot your wife twice with the three hundred. Oh, it just is crazy. But the man is uh, his housekeeper fell down and uh, hit her head and uh, died in the hospital. I mean, and died later. And uh, uh, he and then he stole all of that money from the family. And uh, oh man, he's just. Uh, He's just terrible person. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody's arguing he's a good guy. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate that. I don't think anybody at this point's arguing that he's a good guy. But he's not on crime or he's not standing trial for being a good or bad guy. He's standing trial for being a murderer or not. Take a break. Back in a minute. Well, let's go back to this. Um, this Really and truly, I'm not a lawyer. Rev's not a lawyer. You need a lawyer in the room with us to explain or express um, certainty on. So, so in a civil case, in other words, the when thinking about the OJ trial, right? If it doesn't fit, you must quit. Right. That's a reasonable doubt. It, it's it, that places a seed of doubt in the jury's mind. Uh, but then he loses the civil trial, right? Because a civil trial had the preponderance of evidence. The preponderance of evidence says OJ did it. Um, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Was a uh, you know a, a fragment of, of evidence that said he didn't do it. Now I still think he did, and I think there was. I think the, the evidence showed beyond a reasonable doubt that he did. But but let's go to the reasonable doubt. So so does the judge tell Dave Baker exactly what reasonable doubt means? And does Dave Baker understand it the same way Kennard does? Does Kennard understand it the same way that, you know, our listeners do? Yeah, where does the subjective part of that come in? Well, I mean, we're, we're all human beings. I mean, we're guilty of allowing our emotions to affect our judgment. You are, I am, everybody is. We're not robots. We're not Vulcans. If we were Vulcans, there wouldn't be many prisons. There wouldn't be many, you know what I mean? We, we do everything logically. We're not logical creatures. We're emotional beings. That's why we have uh, the, these imperfect lives in an imperfect world that we all agree with or are all live in. But, um, but, but I think what Mike is talking about, the state has not done a good job, as far as he's concerned, at removing doubt. You know, when I sit in that jury, um, okay, let me ask you this. Forget evidence for a second. Don't I have a built-in way of looking at a wealthy white man or a perceived wealthy white man? I mean, am I more than likely to give him the benefit of the doubt that I am somebody else? I mean, it's just okay. hard to get You're here. You're supposed not to, well, I mean, but, but it's real hard to, I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to find the perfect jury or the perfect trial and the perfect information or data. I just think that if we're waiting to, to to not have any doubt, then you're never going to convict anybody of anything. I'm not saying that, that criminal cases should go by the same way that, that civil cases do with the preponderance of evidence is good enough, but beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, that's a high bar. I guess it should be a high bar, especially in a in a murder case, because you don't want to convict anybody of murder, but is it is it is it equally disgusting to allow the murderer to be free in other words aren't we kind of making a calculus we got one candidate that we think may or may not have done this i think that seems to be some of the um some of the defense cases um strategy is to say you never look for anybody else i mean you made your mind up this was the guy that did it 
and you kind of circle the wagons around him and you never look for anybody else who may or may not have been. Um, well, I mean, I guess the, the guy that will appear Wednesday would be a co-conspirator in the uh, in the murder trial. And um, but but I, once again, it doesn't matter who we have here to report on the facts of what the, the trial has suggested thus far. You've got the defense and the and the prosecution telling two tales, but it still comes down to the the, the, the personal subjectivity of a jury, doesn't it? I mean, if we're talking about beyond a reasonable doubt and Dave Baker and I are in that room and Dave says, man, I'm just not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. And I say, how? I mean, how can you not be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt? I mean, 90% of the evidence, not 100% of the evidence, 90% of the evidence says he did it. Now, I'm just, I'm using that as a kind of a made up number. I don't know that 90% of the evidence says he did it. It may be 50% of the evidence um, says he did it if 50% says he does not or he did not do it. Um, and, and the prosecution should be held to a higher standard. Juror, your job is also to decide which witnesses are credible, which evidence you believe. But, but as a right? jury, okay. Yeah. But, but as a jury, how responsible are you to understand everything? I mean, some of these things are real confusing. Right. Remember the OJ trial. I mean, after the fact, some said, I didn't understand DNA. I mean, I had no idea whether they were talking about the DNA match and the sequence of, you know, um, the genetic sequences of DNA. Uh, there were two or three jurors that said, I had no idea what they were talking about there. So when you confuse a jury, to me, you're less likely to get a favorable decision if you are indeed um, a prosecutor. I may try to run down a lawyer this week and get one to come on to explain, you know, uh, preponderance of evidence in a civil case. I got to imagine there might be a lawyer listening, chuckling to themselves about us non-lawyers well, talking I mean, about this but, stuff but anyway. i'm admitting that i don't know, I know me but, too. It, but, but i do believe i'm right in a preponderance of evidence is required in a civil case and beyond a reasonable doubt which is a more severe test of evidence is required to convict someone in a criminal matter criminal trial which is probably the way it should be um but it's all subjective i mean it doesn't matter preponderance of evidence is subjective beyond a reasonable doubt is subjective and I think when you take into the fact of a man's financial turmoil, it leads me to believe that he's more likely to do something like that and not. Um, I, I would argue this. This is kind of a weird human complex. I don't know that women understand clearly what men's capacities are when it comes to not being able to provide or not being as equipped to take care of the financial matters of a family. I mean, that's kind of weird. I don't understand. I mean, in other words, my wife's nurturing nature, to me, at times, becomes irrational. Uh, they're fine. I mean, your, your, your kids are fine. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, but as far as she's concerned, no, they aren't. They need my nurturing. I mean, she naturally, I think females naturally nourish. I mean, they, you know, I, I got to go make sure they're okay. And I'm sitting over here as a father going, they're okay. If they're not, they'll figure it out. But when it comes to the financial matters, aren't we... I mean, isn't that kind of in our DNA, Rev? I'm not saying just financially, but providing the hunter-gatherer, so to speak, that is um kind of embedded in most of um in most of males. You know, talking about the um the men and women and the dynamics. I went to the movie Friday night, and my wife and I found it was Groundhog Day's 30th anniversary. Stick with me for a second. This okay. is interesting to me. So Groundhog Day's 30th anniversary with Bill Murray. And, um, it, you know, the day goes over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And it gets a little better every day. It gets a little better the same day every day. That's kind of the best way to explain it. But there weren't any lesbians. 
There, there weren't any gay right marches. There weren't any transgenderisms. I mean, there weren't. There, there was not the. Is that a man or a woman? It, it was. I mean, it was 1993. And when I left the theater, I told my wife, said it amazes me how this country has changed in 30 years because if Groundhog Day were made today, there would have to be a transgender. There would have to be a biracial couple. There would have to be, you know, a gay man or woman. There would have to be some sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of shock element to that. It could not, there, there is no way Groundhog Day could have been made today like it was made in 1993. Mm. Um, there was a man, a romance, and a woman. You know, and, and everything just seemed like uh, the normal <laughs> social construct that most of us have become. Um, we thought that was the way uh, things were. It's and for a long you, time. You saw that, and it seemed a little weird and out well, of place. It, it, it was well, different. It, it, it's just it, different. It, it don't be like there's no way Hollywood allow that movie to be made <laughs> in that fashion today because somebody would be offended. There was not representation of transgenderisms. Or the biracial couple, or bisexual couple, or whatever. I mean, there would have been some um, some exception to the to the way Groundhog Day was made, and it wasn't 1953. This was 1993. In the last 30 years, how much change has become normalized in American culture and society? Um, I want to I want to shift gears. I found this interesting over the weekend. Something I read. Um, talking about local governments we're talking about local governments, state governments the federal government um in 2020 local governments across the united states collected about nine billion dollars in fines and fees in fines and fees nine billion dollars this is why i found it interesting local governments in about four states averaged 35 dollars per resident in fines and fees in 2020, in contrast, local governments in another five states averaged only $3 in fines and fees in revenue per residence, per residence in 2020. So you've got five states that are collecting on average $35 in fines and fees per resident. Another five states at the bottom collecting only $3. I mean, is there this more honest living in those states. Can I guess what states they are? Well, I mean, uh, some say it would surprise you in some. Uh, uh, New York, Illinois, no surprise there. Right. Uh, Georgia. Uh, okay. But Texas mm. is in the list of the most fine and feed states in America. And then you go to Connecticut, Maine, Nebraska, and Kentucky, which kind of stands to reason. The least fined uh, in all of the... The, the point it, that, that was interesting to me is I call them poverty penalties. When you... When someone breaks a, a rule, when they break a regulation, they do something that the city says you can't do. You can't leave your, you can't leave your trash by the street but for two days. I mean, I'm making something up in the abstract. And out of that comes a kind of an interest fee, a late fine, uh, some penalty for not you know doing exactly what it is you were supposed to do. And they become, I mean, to me, they're particularly regressive. Because they, you know, the people that live in poverty, the, the, the classic example you and I would use, Rev, is the person that can't pay their child support, you suspend their driver's license. I mean, does that make it more or less likely that they'll be able to catch up at some point in time? I mean, I understand the debts of society. I get that. But, but it seems to me, <laughs> it had seemed to me that local governments are using a lot of these processes as a way to raise revenue. In fact, you, you got to believe that because, I mean, there are people in New Hampshire, Connecticut, Maine, Nebraska, and Kentucky 
just I mean, are they more honest and live better and more in line with government than um, New York, Illinois, Texas, and Georgia? Why are Why are New York, Texas, Georgia, and and uh and Illinois collecting thirty five dollars per person on average in late fees and fines and uh, you know, suspensions or reinstatement fees. In other words, your driver's license gets suspended and you got to go get your driver's license back. And to get it back, there's a $100, you know, re- reassignment fee or whatever that goes along with that. And in Nebraska, Kentucky, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Maine, nobody's doing much of any of that. It just seems to me that we are. I mean, they raise $9 billion annually in late fines and fees. And um, that's a lot of money. Nine billion dollars. I'll give you an example. So, um, the of all the local governments in America, in 2010, only two and a half percent had their had 10 percent of their revenue generated by fees and fines. Today, it's about nine percent of the money is generated. So, it looks to me like that local governments, whether they're intending to or not, have turned these into profit centers. It's not really about the fee or fine. It's about the profit center the ability for a local government to generate X number of dollars of revenue and you letting your license go lapse. You know, you being late to do this or late to do that, late penalty, um, late fine. So, so, so should we, should the governments be allowed to do that? I mean, should the governments be allowed to collect $9 billion, should local governments in America be allowed to collect $9 billion in fines and fees for you not doing exactly what you were supposed to do when you were um, supposed to do it. And once again, uh, I call them poverty penalties. And to me, they're particularly regressive because if someone is struggling to pay their bills, the last thing you need to do is heap a a 10% late fee or a 20%. uh, You you don't see where I'm headed. I I, I just thought that was interesting um, that local governments collected $9 billion dollars in fines and fees. <laughs> and um, what's the story there? I don't know, other than it's still a transfer of wealth from the private to the public sector. Um, it's then, punitive. Well, it's I mean, meant it's, to be. Well, I mean, that goes back to what I've said over and over and over again. The government, whether intentionally or not, has become unbelievably punitive. And the $9 billion is not budgeted. I mean, it's not, you know, the ad valorem taxes and the, um, the, the millage for the school district and the millage for the EMS. I mean, this is money on top of, and I guess you budget the money accordingly. And I would imagine you project how much money that will raise if people don't, you know, do this on time or, or that on time. But the point I'm trying to make is the majority of people who don't pay um, a speeding ticket on time, they don't have the money. So, so not only do they, owe, and I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I hear callers now, what are you doing? Say, forgive the, the speeding ticket. I mean, if the speeding ticket is $80 and, and all of a sudden the person can't pay 80 you had a $20 late fine. What makes you think the person could pay $100? Maybe we should set up a better way to make payments, you know, a, a more aggressive way of uh, planning or, or put them on some sort of um, uh, amateurized payment plan or something. I don't know. Um, but $9 billion was a staggering number um, as far as I'm concerned. And I, I was hoping it would be, uh, you know, and I'll be honest, I'll be a, a homer conservative here for a second. I was hoping that the majority of fines were collected in blue states. Mm-hmm. Um, Texas is near the top of that. And then on some of the um, some of the other states that don't do much of it, you got New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Maine, which are not um, conservative states. And you got Nebraska and Kentucky. The point is there's no rhyme or reason. 
as to blue states collecting more late fines than red states or red states collecting um, less fines than blue states. 843-661-0937 is our number. Found kind of an interesting story on Tesla that we'll touch on after we take our next break. You know, we question a lot whether, you know, there's a significant climate change issue in America today. I mean, I think we all care about the climate. I think we all understand that the better stewards we can be, the better off the place is, the better, uh, the more effective and efficient way, more innovative way we transport people from point A to point B. I don't think he's going to be arguing against the electric car. I think we're arguing against the uh, the political realities of the grid and its capacity, and it's um it's it's being prepared for what the government says is heading is heading our way. But I read something over the weekend about Tesla that I found interesting. Um, if you remember in January, Tesla made an announcement that they're cutting prices on their cars by about twenty percent. They lost some market share in the EV sector of the economy, and and I remember reading that going like, wow, is Tesla uh, is Tesla having problems? Uh, you know, they got a production backlog. It was 476,000. It's down to about 80,000. I mean, they, they produce more cars now than they ever have. But I went back and read some of the gross profits per vehicle on Tesla. Have you seen this? No. I mean, this is unbelievable to me. Because mm. um, we talk about, you know, Tesla's getting some competition from GM, from Ford, from Toyota, right. uh, some of the big brands, the legacy brands in particular. But when Tesla dropped their their price is about 20%. Um, it really and truly, um, I, I guess, was an attempt to secure or protect its market share. Not secure, but protect its market share. Um, but when you hear a company cutting prices by 20%, it reeks of desperation. You're like, wow, I mean, something's wrong at Tesla. If they're having to cut prices 20%, they're apparently giving up market share. They've given up no market share. I mean, the EV industry is getting bigger. I mean, the production numbers are getting larger uh, the percentage of vehicles bought this year that are electric will be higher than they've ever been until next year. And then so, so innovation, technology, entrepreneurship, um, it's just government is trying to drive it at far too, too fast a pace. But I went and looked at the gross profit per car. The gross profit per Tesla electric vehicle is about $16,000. For GM, it's $3,800. For Toyota, it's $3,900. Hundred dollars for thirty-eight. Excuse me for Hyundai. It's fifty-three hundred dollars. Volkswagen is fifty-six hundred dollars. Ford's at thirty-one hundred dollars. So all these competitors are making uh, a percentage of what Tesla is making per electric vehicle. And then you get to net profit per car, and it's even more astounding. Tesla is making about ten grand net profit per car. Um, GM's making about twenty one hundred. Ford's making uh, Ford's losing seven hundred sixty two dollars per electric car. Uh, VW's making about nine hundred seventy three dollars per car. Toyota's making about a thousand one hundred ninety seven dollars per car. So Tesla is giving up a lot of their profit or twenty percent of their profit, but they're still unbelievably more profitable than anybody else in that space. And that's the hand Elon Musk is playing with um, really and truly in a way that nobody else is coming close to. I mean, it's not even close. Now, now the sales numbers are getting a little bit closer. The number of Ford EVs being sold, the number of GM, the number of Toyota, the number of Nissan and Hyundai. Once again, some of these legacy, more established manufacturers, but they're just not making profit. 
on the EV. In fact, Ford says they're losing nearly $1,000 per EV they sell, while Tesla is netting about ten grand uh, per car. I don't have any idea other than technological advancement. I mean, that's why Tesla is doing so much better than anybody else is in, in that space. So when they announce these price cuts, uh, as, as a good old boy, I interpret, uh-oh, something's wrong at Tesla. You know, GM and Ford are really get GM, Ford, and Toyota are really getting into their into their numbers. That's not the case. Uh, they're doing this to protect their market share, but they're still able to do this because they're making so much money, so much more money per EV than some of the other um, legacy manufacturers. And they attribute a lot of this to battery technology, that they are just so far in advance of where these other companies are um, when it comes to the uh, what am I trying to say, Rev? The uh, the cost analysis of a battery is that kind of what we're looking at? Yeah, the efficiencies in manufacturing, um, and then you've got these Chinese startups. Um, e, I'll spell it instead of trying to pronounce it. I guess it's Xping E. Excuse me, X P E N G, and then Neo or Nio N I O. The profits there are absolutely non-existent. Is being subsidized by the Chinese government. Um, so you know they'll, they're, there's no way they can match Tesla's reduction in price. And so when you say, am I bearish or bullish on Tesla stock? I mean, I guess Reggie Armstrong would be the one to, to ask this. So Tesla cuts their profit by 20%. And you go, wow, probably a good time to sell all of my Tesla stock. No, it's probably a good time to buy more Tesla stock because I think they will increase their market share. While I mean, obviously, they're giving up some profit. But they're still highly profitable in that um, in that electric vehicle space when nobody else um, is. It's kind of an interesting nugget of information I picked up um, over the weekend. Actually, an article in Wall Street Journal visualizing Tesla's unrivaled profit margins is the name of it, and they're talking about um, you know they, they've seen some. I mean, they, they've seen some sales growth, but they've seen robust production growth that they're able to build a lot more of these cars. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Elon Musk released last week one day the um the mega facility in Texas. The what is it the the giga facility? I mean, there, there's so much electricity. Rev, I was involved in a conversation Friday. Ah, that would have been Friday for lunch with um that was about electric grids and economic development and some of these other issues. And it is amazing how many companies. Excuse me what sort of energy crisis we're going to have in the next 10 years. Well, we're kind of in one now. I mean, if the economy were growing faster than it is now, we would already have big, big issues, not just in South Carolina, but all over the country when it comes to rolling blackouts, conserving energy. And I'm not just talking about the for-profits. I'm talking about some of the co-ops and the, and the issues they're dealing with. Really? These, um, these manufacturing facilities that are making their way down south and the onshoring back to America from foreign lands have, um, I mean, it's, it's not uncommon to have a 100-megawatt facility that needs an unbelievable amount of power, and we're not building coal-generating plants any longer. The nuclear plant takes, you know, a 1,000 years to get permitted, so we're depending on wind and solar to make up some of the, well, let me back up. We're depending on renewable energy to create, you know, efficient, affordable, and dependable energy and we're just nowhere near there yet. Um, the people in the energy sector are real nervous. The people in the economic development sector are real nervous about the commitments the government's made 
to undependable, unreliable, very inefficient energy production and how that will impact or affect economic development on the average is a, is a little bit alarming when I heard some of these folks who eat, breathe, and sleep this every single day. And in some of these high-growth states like South Carolina, that we're going to need more power generation. And we, we don't have any coal plants online. We don't have any nuclear facilities online. And if you build enough wind, excuse me, solar panels, I'll give you an example. Um, guy in the energy sector told me this. If we, if we were able to install the solar panels necessary to meet the energy demands of the next 10 years, not 20 or 30 or 40 years, of the next 10 years, we would only have acreage left the size of Texas and California combined. In other words, every other acre of land in America would have a solar panel installed, except, uh, you know, a land mass the size of Texas and a land mass the size of California. Mm-hmm. It's insanity is what it is, and it's making America less competitive and, and, you know, recruiting manufacturing jobs and manufacturing facilities to our to our nation and our state, and it's laser-focused. And these people in the energy sector are talking about how politicized energy production has become, and it goes back to my theory, and this is another theory I have, not of murder uh, your kid and your wife, but, you know, the theory I have on the macros of our situation with debt and energy. You know, we don't seem to be serious about energy we don't seem to be serious about our federal debt, and I think those two issues will define the geopolitics of America in contrast to the world, um, and, and we just don't seem to be as ambitious as I would like to see us uh, become. We're still further incentivizing some of the renewable and green energy aspects of, of our economy, and these guys are cheerleaders. I mean, they're, they're fans of renewables. I mean, they, they really and truly are. They want to see us get to a place of renewable energy, less coal less fossil fuel, but they tell me this is a two-generation transition. I mean, this is a uh, 75 to 100-year transition that the government and, you know, some of the extraterrestrials within our government, like John Kerry, <laughs> say can happen in, uh, in six or eight or 10 years. And he predicted, one guy that, at the meeting predicted that we will see um, a fair amount of rolling blackouts during some of the really, really cold spells and the really, really hot times, in other words, oh, that's you know, not the, good. the dog days of summer yeah. when everybody's running their air conditioner and everybody's doing whatever it is we do in the, in the dog days of summer, he's predicting that we will have probably 45 minute to an hour and a half pretty normal black, uh, blackouts. Hmm. In other words, um, you'll know on Monday and Thursday that for an hour and 10 minutes, you're not going to have power. And you just kind of deal with it the best way, the best way you know how. But the reason is... You know, we, we've not pursued fossil fuel energy in a meaningful fashion in a long time. And, and we have people in charge of government that are kind of hostile to fossil fuels, and they're trying to do away with it. Well, they're, they're not just hostile. They're actually subsidizing the opposition. You know, they're, they're basically saying if you were to, if you make an investment in, you know, an electric vehicle, get a $7,500 tax credit. I mean, they're, they're, they're instead of that, Solyndra would be the first horror story to come down the pike but yeah we're subsidizing a lot of energy production to compete with a very dependable source of energy that we seem to be willing to um i don't know rev disassociate ourselves with much quicker than most of the experts uh believe we can i will see how that works itself out but it was an interesting meeting and that we're talking about local state and and at the national level 
and what the next five years, 10 years, 15, um, 20 years look like. And, and, and as I've said before, guys, energy is a big deal. I mean, if you're, if you're locating, well, I'll give an example, the, the Envision plant that is coming to Florence. I mean, that, that's a 50-year run. I mean, that, you know, that place, we believe, will make batteries for 50 years. Japanese company coming to America. Uh, it's, it's, its big job is to, apply the B, to supply the BMW EV with the, um, the battery and technology necessary to keep it competitive, but it's going to consume a, an, a tremendous amount of energy and electricity, and we're already concerned about, you know, can we – I mean, how do you go out and recruit three other industries when you question whether or not you can provide – affordable uh dependable energy well here's my question uh if we have a change of administration say to donald trump or a republican next time can the policies be changed to sort of deal with this in a more reasonable fashion to where we wouldn't have to uh have the blackouts and be able to meet the power demand well let me see that's an interesting question i don't know the answer to that because i don't know how i don't know what the projections are i mean all i know now after lunch on friday is that we're behind I mean, the, the, the amount of energy projected that we'll need to be the, the preeminent superpower economically, I'm not talking about the military, I'm talking about economically, to attract industry, to provide jobs, to create, uh, you know, GDP. It's going to take X number of gigawatts or megawatts, or however you measure energy. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you would know better better than I'm in. Mean, a megawatt of energy is a bunch of energy. Yeah. A gigawatt's even more. So, um. I mean, it's a little bit like the, the computer farms, the terabytes and all these gigabytes and terabytes and all these. Right. I mean, energy is measured in a similar fashion. It's just in, in wattage. Watts. Yeah. So, so if, we've got, if we've got a projected load of X and we're not building new sources of energy, how do we meet that projected load? Uh, you know, I guess we import energy from other places and you can buy and sell energy like a commodity on some sort of exchange. But um, I, I just think we have, and, and once again, I want to be clear, because I've never, ever said I'm against renewable energy. I mean, I'm not. Anything we can do to not depend on Saudi Arabia and the drug cartel, I'm for. Uh, if, it's, if it's exploring here in America for oil, I'm for it. Fracking, I'm for it. Um, renewable energy, I'm for it. But I think we are far too, I think we're unrealistically ambitious in what we believe we can do in the next 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. I think we can do what we're talking about doing. I think we, we could eventually wean ourselves off of a percentage of oil and coal and fossil fuel-based energy, um, but, but I, don't, I don't think we can ever completely abandon a, a very dependable, very reliable, very affordable form, form of energy in the name of saving the planet. I mean, that's just irrational. It's impractical, and it's really going to start being, I mean, it's going to be where the rubber hits the road sooner than later because a lot of our lives will be, fundamentally disrupted by not having power for an hour two days a week an hour and 15 minutes one day a week i think that's where we're headed i mean after sitting down friday discussing some of these um complicated matters i don't think it'll be uncommon at all a couple of years from now for for you to be told by duke or or you know uh, marlboro pd electric some of our co-op providers santee cooper in particular i don't think it'll be that uncommon for 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 you to get some sort of text or email or notice saying hey we're going to have to cut your power off for an hour today because of our base load. You know, our load exceeds our ability to supply. And I mean, I don't think it'd be every day. I mean, I don't think we've gotten that far down this road. But as we continue to grow in South Carolina, as we continue to demand and consume energy and electricity, I just think there's going to be some some troubled days ahead 
if you will. Well, look what happened with the uh, right of that cold snap around Christmas. I mean, there were blackouts. That was reality. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the, there were I – mean, the, the, if I'm not mistaken, well, I know this to be true. It, Duke was hit much harder than, than the co-op was. I mean, the co-op was able to kind of meet their demand. I think Duke was the one that had some issues, and they're, they're kind of a, a – you know they're they're in multiple states. I mean, they, you know they they've got they provide power all up and down the East Coast, Southeast in particular. And um, I guess they're trying to balance the supply and the demand. Um, but you can only produce so much energy, and we're producing less. And I don't want to say we're producing less energy. I think we're producing far less efficient and affordable energy by our incentivizing the competition to fossil fuels. We'll take a break. We'll be back. In just a minute. I looked at some of the odds makers over the weekend. Donald Trump, uh, Ron DeSantis, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Nikki Haley, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, Glenn Youngkin, Michelle Obama, Mike Pence, all the names bandied about as may or may not be considering a run for the presidency. But remember last week we touched on some of the percentages. Uh, DeSantis was 26.5%. Biden was 25%. Trump was about 21 or 2%. Um, Nikki Haley was 3.8%. She's up to 5.9%. What that means, I don't have a clue. Why it's up two points, she's announced her candidacy informally. I think there'll be a formal announcement in um, in Charleston next week, if I'm not mistaken. But I went to some of the odds makers. There's a website called Odds Checker, and, um, and they have uh, Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis plus 275. Remember, the lower the number, the better. Uh, on the plus side, the lower the number, the better. So Biden and DeSantis are plus 275. Trump's at plus 350. Um, Kamala Harris at plus 1,800. Nikki Haley plus 1,800. And then you got Gavin Newsom plus 2,000. Whitmer plus 3,300. I would imagine, I mean, if they decide to run and announce uh, Youngkins at plus 4,000, Michelle Obama plus 4,000, Mike Pence, that's speculative. The only announced candidates we have is um is Haley and she hadn't announced but she has is um is Haley Trump and and Biden I think the Republican Party still waits with bated breath to see what Ron DeSantis will do um it'll be interesting because the legislative session in Florida um, ends in March and from what I'm gathering and I've got a couple of folks who have some knowledge of what DeSantis is doing in Florida it will be probably the end of March maybe 1st of May before he formally announces he's running or not. Um, What's your money on? I I think he runs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he does. I think Ron DeSantis runs, and I think he respects Trump. I hope Trump respects DeSantis. Probably not. I wish he would. Um, I don't know the Ron Sanctimonious gets as far uh, within the party and sustaining a political movement, but if I'm giving DeSantis any advice, it would be to respect Trump and his army. Um, you're not there to insult. You're not there to um, disparage. You're simply there to say, it, you know, thank you, Donald Trump, for all you did, and let's move on to the next phase, not of a Chris Christie agenda, not of an establishment Nikki Haley, but rather America first. Um, I want to take what Donald Trump and build upon that. I mean, that, that would be what I talk about. Now, Trump will probably say, why would you take the little brother when you can get, you know, the original? Why, why would you buy the, um, the first imitator when you can still get the um, – the original, but but I'm reading a lot. And the one thing Haley says that resonates with Republican voters is younger leadership. I mean, it's time to have younger leadership. And um, and that really seems to be the centerpiece of her campaign. 
Uh, forget establishment in America first. I mean, she wants you to. And, and by, you know, by, by telling people consistently that I'm the new leader, you know, I'm the fresh face. I'm the next chapter of this, uh, this interesting book that, you know, destroyed the establishment. I worked for the guy. I know the guy. Um, he wouldn't have picked me if he thought I was a, you know what I mean? If I, if, if, if Donald Trump thought I was an establishment Republican, he would have never picked me to be, to be ambassador uh, to the United Nations. I think the Democrats have a dilemma. And that is Biden. I mean, obviously, there's a, there's suspicion about, you know, whether he runs or not. Um, but you don't have anybody ready, willing, and able. I mean, they're still trying to craft Buttigieg. I mean, every chance Buttigieg gets on television, the national media comes to the aid of trying to make him appear to be stronger, more in control, uh, more executive-like, uh, a better leader. Uh, we heard his resume, Harvard, and the military, and all that, and all that good stuff. But there's still, to me, some speculation of the Democrats that they can some way, somehow get Buttigieg back at a better place because he, he's, you know, he's gay, he's articulate. I mean, he's everything that, that Democrats are enamored with um, today. He has a very um, diverse quality about him. He's a little bit cosmopolitan and elitist, which is something the Democrats seem to be, um, I don't want to say enamored with, but very supportive of. But in the Republican Party, I mean, it's Trump or DeSantis. I mean, I really and truly believe that. Can Haley get to 20%? If she's the only establishment in and there's no Ron DeSantis, maybe. But if DeSantis doesn't get in, Trump's at 44, 45, maybe even as high as 50 in some of these um, in some of these states. And I just don't know how anybody not named Ron DeSantis beats Donald Trump in a Republican primary. Take a break. We'll be back. In just a few. See, it may not have been the Allen's Parson Project. It may be the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> Good choice. The eye in the sky that can read your mind. I don't know about reading your mind, but it certainly flew from China. Now, now we think we have a, a path now, right? Because uh, Rick called this morning and said, how did it get here without going over Russia? So Russia must be in cahoots. No. Now, now I, I'm, I'm kind of a, 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 I'm not a geography expert by any stretch. But I am a bit worldly. So, oh, you ready? You know where you've got you've got are. Russia to the north. Mm-hmm. You've got Mongolia kind of situated in the middle. You've got China below that. Now, to the um, looking at a map, you've got Alaska to the right. But before you get there, you've got the Korean Peninsula. That would be North and South Korea. Let me let me guess which one's north. That would be the more northward <laughs> right. one, right? North Dakota, South Dakota, North Korea. You're South sure you're Korea. not a geographer? Yeah. There you go. I'm not. Okay. And then off, off to the um to the right of the Korean Peninsula, you've got Japan. So it looks like the balloon. That's pretty wild. The balloon, the balloon. left China, kind of went south of the Korean Peninsula, south of Japan, and then it looped to the um to the north and and east. And kind of um, traverse through Alaska, the wild frontier, um, northern, excuse me, western Canada, and then kind of made its way into Billings, Montana, if we're not mistaken. But it looks now we don't know this to be true. This is uh, you know what we what we've been told and what we've been led to believe is true that it did not cross any Russian airspace, didn't cross any North or South Korean airspace, didn't cross any Japanese airspace, only. America. So when it leaves Chinese airspace, the next nation's airspace it invades is American airspace in uh, Alaska. 
then Canada's airspace, and then back in America's airspace again, that there's kind of a, a rumor that there were three examples of this during the Trump presidency. Now, Mike Pompeo has vehemently denied any of that. Um, Radcliffe, I think it was Department of National, National Intelligence. Intelligence. I think he's the one that also spoke loudly and proudly that that was not true, inaccurate. Um, some of these stories will make themselves more 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 known and more trusted well, the, as time passes while the biden administration is criticized by some by the for the way they handled this whole situation and the fact that they let it traverse our country before they shot it down and then they're getting criticized and then yesterday they're like yeah but trump yeah but trump it, uh, it happened it, to trump it, it really is interesting how the biden administration and democrats in general always try to compare and contrast to trump you know, whatever the Democrats do, whether it's good or bad, it's always about Trump. I mean, the measuring stick is Donald Trump. But Trump, what if Trump? Did you know Trump? I know Trump. Yeah, it's always Trump, 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 whatever. And that's one reason I hope he wins again. I mean, if nothing else for that, because, <laughs> you know, I don't know that they'll turn DeSantis into Trump because I don't know that DeSantis has the personality traits and characteristics of a Donald Trump. But we do know that a, a, a spy balloon left China. We're, we're led to believe it didn't invade Korean airspace, didn't invade Japanese airspace, didn't invade Russian airspace, did in, uh, eventually invade American airspace, not the continental U.S., but rather Alaska, and then across Canada, then into Billings, Montana. And a reporter in Billings, Montana, received several calls from members of I guess Montanans, who said, the hell's that in the sky? <laughs> Is that a UFO? And he inquired and found out, no, it was a an unmanned Japanese spy. Um, the eye in the sky. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD, good morning. Hey, good morning. Wasn't there a song back in the day, uh, up and away, in my beautiful balloon? And uh, I was thinking about, Ken, why would they target Montana? Didn't didn't Mike just move to Montana? He did. Uh, doggone. And this thing ended up where? Close to where you on the weekends normally, right? Yes. Yeah, see, I've, I've re, um, yeah, it's Surfside Beach from what I understand. Off yeah, the coast of Surfside Beach. That. Maybe they're trying to spy on Wake Up Carolina. Yeah. There's a, there's a theory for you. Uh, I give Chinese credit, man, that, hey, they end up being the good guy in this thing. It don't matter where it got shot down. They're the good guy in this. Uh, and who, I mean, they are the ultimate secular and socialist, no heaven. Oh, my God. I mean, the, the world now, or United States, the, the, the left, they love that. Now, I, But I'm going to put a little spin on it, too. I went through all the... Uh, Every state it went through was a Republican state. And notice how we can all take pictures from the ground of it. What those blue skies that we could see this? All this stuff was blue skies. So they talk about climate change. Imagine if you were in China or some of these uh, Asian countries, they couldn't, have, they couldn't have taken a picture of a balloon because they got so much. These are the places that have all this. Uh, smog and air pollution and this and that. So, again, this is a, a, a you call it a diversion tactic. Uh, and, again, give South Carolina credit. I mean, at least Biden, he, in, in his infinite 
dumbness. He he says he tells them to shoot it down anytime. No, the the military establishment decided what to shoot it down. But give them credit, they did it before it got international waters. But they did it right here in South Carolina. So good going, South Carolina. Have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. You know, I, once again, th- there's all sorts of storylines here. There's a story that the American military realized immediately that the the spy balloon had invaded airspace and scrambled its capacities, its ability to do whatever it was trying to do. Um, but but how do we know that? I mean, how do we know that the, the Chinese technology is as good as the uh, American technology? It would have made more sense once the, the balloon gets over U.S. Um, airspace to shoot it down. I mean, that, that, to me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, if I'm president, I'm not. But if I were, and somebody came in and briefed me about a Chinese spy balloon that looks like it's going to make its way onto the coast of Alaska, I would have said, and I know I would have, shoot it down before it gets over land. Just off the coast of Alaska, shoot it down. I mean, whatever diplomatically we've got to do to, to China, let them know that, that apparently one of their unmanned spy satellites has, you know, uh, gotten off the chain, so to speak, or off the leash, so to speak, and it's entering U.S. airspace, and we're going to deal with it appropriately or accordingly. Why wait until it goes all the way across the United States and then shoot it out over the coast? I mean, if we were, and, and listen, the scarier part is if we weren't aware. I mean, if a Chinese spy balloon was making its way onto the coast of Alaska and we weren't aware, I mean, that scares me and worries oh, yeah. me more. I find that more concerning than if we weren't aware. I mean, excuse me, that if we were. So if we're aware that there's a, a spy balloon, we, we, we reach out to China and we say, hey, what about this spy balloon you got floating around and, and uh, 50,000 feet above sea level? It's about to invade our airspace, so we're going to shoot it down. I mean, to be a good neighbor, I mean, I understand we're geopolitical adversaries, but to be a good neighbor, we're just letting you know on the front end what we're trying to do. We didn't do that. We let the damn spy balloon fly from Alaska, across Alaska, um, in and through. You know Trudeau's not going to do anything in Canada because they're scared of everything. They're scared of their own shadow in Canada. But it enters Billings, Montana, and and makes its way all the way across the United States. And then the government celebrates shooting a Chinese spy. I mean, how long would an American spy balloon lasted once it entered Chinese airspace? Ask yourself that. How long... When an American China, excuse me, an American spy balloon lasted once it entered Chinese airspace. I don't think it would ever made it there. No, it wouldn't have. I, I can assure you of that. They would have shut. They, they they may or may not have reached out to American foreign policy experts and said, "Hey, one of your balloons is doing something it doesn't need to be doing, and we're dealing with it." Just what we should have done as, as the American government. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsfield. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning, guys. Please. The thing that interests me if they knew where it was they could have shot it down over the Aleutian Islands but the, the way they shot it down they used the Sidewinder missile all they had to do was send a F-16 up and shoot it with his guns take the helium out and let it come down real slow and save the intel you know they hit it with a Sidewinder so they probably screwed up everything you know, maybe on purpose I don't know but the thing that concerns me is, you know, they say, oh, it happened during Trump. Well, ain't no way, because we'd all have known about it if it happened during Trump. And if it did happen, just, you know, let's go along with that. Now, they're getting us used to seeing these things. 
went out and they put a, a small nuclear device on this bad boy at 40, 50, 60,000 feet and detonated it over, you know, central, eastern coast. That, that's called an EMP that would destroy our electrical grid. And, you know, people don't think about stuff like that. They're putting us in a lot of danger letting this stuff go, and the only reason they shot it down was the American people put so much heat on them to do it that they couldn't stand it no more. So the American people's got a voice, and, you know, we just need to keep calling our congressmen and senators and telling them what we think and how they ought to act, and usually they do because, you know, they love nothing more than stand up there in that cushy job which amazes me. They got a 12% approval rating, and we keep voting this stupid SOBs in office. So but that's what I think about being ex-military, uh, an EMP coming over and just wiping out the electrical grid. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Well, I mean, uh, forget being a foreign policy diplomat or, or foreign policy expert or some member of the foreign policy community. I mean, the intel community, the, the military. I mean, forget that for a second. I'm an average American in Billings, Montana, or Surfside Beach, South Carolina, and there's a Chinese spy balloon floating randomly over our nation. I mean, once again, forget the intel committee. Forget the foreign policy committee. Forget Marco Rubio and, and Tom Cotton and Chuck Schumer. And, you know, I mean, just forget that for a second and just think logically and I mean, think unprofessionally. Think it's just an average American. You're working still. What's that up there? That's the Goodyear blimp. What's that up there? Uh, that's a private plane. What's that up there? That's that missile that Elon Musk sends off every day. What's that up there? Oh, that's a Chinese spy balloon. I mean, sometimes it, you know, <laughs> say it out loud. Hey, I'm in Billings, Montana. There's something flying over me. Can you explain? I mean, anybody got any idea what this is? And then the news reporter says, yeah, we just found out from the government, the Pentagon or whomever, that it's a Chinese spy balloon. I mean, if you're living in Billings, Montana, don't you say, do what? I mean, it's a Chinese spy balloon? Why would a Chinese spy balloon be allowed to float over Billings, Montana? Why would a Chinese spy balloon be allowed to float over Surfside Beach, South Carolina? The answer is it shouldn't be under any circumstance. And the, the only logical way to address this is... Once the Chinese spy balloon appears to be making its way into American airspace off the coast of Alaska, we inform the Chinese government that we're about to shoot it down. We don't ask, hey, did you know this thing got away? What, what is your intent? What's the purposes? No, that there are no questions asked. We're the United States of America. It's our airspace. Alaska's our 49th state. We're taking care of it. Was Alaska 49 or 50? I think Alaska was 49, wasn't it? I think so. And Hawaii was 50. I want to make sure. Well, if I'm wrong, somebody will correct me, rest <laughs> assured. We'll get a call or a text here. <laughs> That's true. In the next one or two or two minutes. I think Alaska was 49 and Hawaii was 50. Could be could be wrong there. But but instead, you had people gawking for a weekend, you know, at 50,000 feet at a chi- – not, not at the Goodyear blimp on race weekend. Not, not at a no, no, an F-16 at an air show or a drill at, at Shaw Air Force Base. No, we're talking about a Chinese spy balloon. And we knew it was a Chinese spy balloon. And we gawked at it for a week. And we took pictures. And, I mean, Facebook's full of that. And Twitter's full of that. 
And Marco Rubio comes on one of the Sunday morning shows yesterday, and they ask him, uh, and he says, I don't know. I've not been in a secure setting since it was made public. In other words, I'm not in D.C. And, you know, when, I, when I'm at home, I'm not in a secure setting. I'm not privileged to some of these secure briefings. When we get back to, to Washington today, which is Monday, we'll find out exactly uh, what some of the details and specificities are. So I would imagine, Rev, that at some point tonight, Fox News will have some report on, you know, exactly what the American military knew, when they knew it, what the American government knew, when they, when they knew it, and who's to be held accountable. Did somebody drop the ball? Should we have shot it down off the coast of Alaska? Uh, did somebody make the recommendation to shoot it down off the coast of or Alaska? decided not to. And, and somebody, somebody with greater authority said, no, let's let it just keep floating. And Joe makes a great point. If they didn't know exactly what it was or they took the Chinese at their word, this is a weather surveillance balloon or whatever, um, what if it was a weapon? They just, I mean, what if they could have dropped something that would have been very, very harmful to our population. Well, I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, did, did we evaluate to a, to an extent that we knew whether or not it had that on? Right. I mean, I'd love to believe we did, but but do we know that? And those are the questions, I guess, Rubio and Cotton and some of the, um, and I guess this is where I like the Hawks a little bit. You know what I mean? They'll dig a little deeper mm-hmm. in, uh, in this. There's, they don't seem to be as interested in a spy balloon floating over uh, the Alaska border as they are the Ukrainian-Russian border. We seem to be fixated on what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, not so much um, the southern border with Mexico. Now, our border with Alaska, that's airspace. I get that. But but to Joe's point, what what if the balloon were not? I mean, did we know it was a weather balloon? I think that's what the Chinese you know said, I mean? right? Of course they did. The, I mean, would the Chinese, hey, we're... um. We want to apologize for the spy balloon. You know, I mean, wow. I mean, that, it just seems odd to me that you've got people in America, average everyday Americans looking up, and they're saying, what is that? And the American government is responding by saying, it's a Chinese balloon. What, what do you mean? It's a, isn't that, that geopolitical adversary that steals our intellectual property? And, you know, it would, may or may not have originated the virus, may, have, may not have originated in a, a virology lab in Wuhan, China? Really? I mean, what if it were some sort of, um, uh, what if it had that sort of ability? I don't know the answer to these provocative but um, hypothetical questions. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, it is interesting how the media will always make it about Trump. I mean, I wonder when they'll stop making it about Trump because uh, John Carl was hosting George Stephanopoulos yesterday at the show Stephanopoulos um, hardly ever host anymore because he's probably made enough money to retire if he chooses to. But Rubio's talking about why would you let a balloon fly over, you know, a sovereign nation's airspace for as long as it did, especially with the, you know, the controversy surrounding the Russian, excuse me, the Chinese-American relationship. <laughs> and Carl says, well, Trump did it three times. You know, I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, the, but Trump. Well, I mean, imagine the, the political world we live in today when the media says... When a member of the Senate says that he questions whether or not it was smart to let, uh, uh, you know, a balloon commissioned by a foreign adversary fly, you know, just dangerously or not over a sovereign nation's airspace, and the media's response is not to further investigate what Rubio thinks should have been done, but just all of a sudden say Trump did it um, three times, 843-661-0937. Yeah, Biden did it once. I mean, imagine, here we are, state of affairs in American politics. You ready? 
Biden only let one Chinese balloon fly over American airspace. <laughs> Trump let three balloons fly over American right. airspace. Come see me when two more are allowed to fly over, and then we'll have a um, a tit for tat, so to speak. And by the way, with all the scrutiny and the way the media seemed out to get Trump the whole time he was there, it's just nobody happened to see those yeah. balloons as they flew over yeah. the country. They flew and over. And report, they kept it to themselves. <laughs> nobody saw those balloons because Trump was the president. Right. And you know how Trump was. Yeah, they, they, just, they didn't want to you know, cause him any trouble. Trump's famous for hiding them damn balloons. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that Donald Trump did. He was the best balloon hiding president we've ever had in the White House. Let's go to the phone. Al in Florence. Morning, Al. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, it, it had nothing to do with being in America's uh, sovereign space when they shot it down. It was getting too close to Ukraine's sovereign space, and that's why they shot it down. <laughs> okay, okay, friendlier to that uh, that country's airspace than our own. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I'll give my um my normal warning. Celsius in hand. I see that three swallows already taken. No telling. Uh, I've already said two profane words since I since I cracked open the Celsius. <laughs> I did see a Celsius race car last night. I did too. Sponsored by Celsius Live Fit. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Tim in Florence. Good morning. Hey, Ken. Hey, Dave. Hey, Tim. Morning. So listen, I've been listening to you guys for years, and this is the first time I've ever called. So, you know, all through the 2020 election crap and everything like that, and I'm just sitting here waiting for years. What is, what is the time that's going to get me fired up enough to call? And today is it. So, oh. and Ken, uh, you and I have never met, but my son, same age as your daughter, went to Royal, went to Sneed, went to West Florence, and in some ways, I feel like I'm a lot alike you, and that I know you and stuff like that. But so, like I said, this is it. This is the moment that I felt compelled to call here this morning. And I know you guys have touched on it. I apologize if I'm being redundant because I just tuned in good. Uh, so th- th- this is a big deal. And if Russell Fry today is not personally drawing up or have been involved in drawing up articles of impeachment, something's wrong. Because, yes, it's United States of America airspace, but it's South Carolina airspace. And it's seventh district airspace. And so the president was derelict in his duty, and that is an impeachable offense. If Trump could be impeached over a phone call with Zelensky, then for sure Biden can be impeached over this. And that's about all I got to say about it. That's well said. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I went back when you were talking. I can multitask, listen to you, and uh, and, and kind of review my text. Russell texted me at 8.50 Saturday morning not how I pictured my day. And he was on Fox News talking about the Chinese spy balloon should have been should have never made the Grand Strand full interview on um on there. And then he, you know, I said, Well, I mean, we just we talked about some other things. Um, seems China had to learn the hard way about coming to, to Surfside. I mean, th- th- there's some humor here, but I think the caller's exactly right. It's not funny. I mean, it's easy to be whimsical about a balloon, right? I mean, it's not a fighter jet. It's not a um, a battalion. It's not a um, it's not an aggressive. Or it doesn't appear to be an aggressive. Balloons or, are fun. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, no question about it. And they float harmlessly around. And, and it reminded me somewhat of a blimp. Remember the um the founder of Virgin, um Virgin Records, yeah, Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson, and and he attempted to what fly around the world in a hot air balloon. It reminded me of that. I mean, it's it's so far above. What where normal aircraft fly 
I mean, not any aircraft, but normal aircraft. I mean, normal aircraft fly at about what, Rev? I mean, I'm talking about air travel. I mean, 35,000 yeah. feet-ish. That's what the pilot says sure. when I've been riding. Yeah. 35, I mean, what about 35,000 feet, 531 miles an hour, blah, 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 blah. You know, just get where you say on the tickets is what I always uh, end up kind of, I mean, I don't know what you're doing, dude. I mean, just, you know. If you gotta if you gotta lean at eight degrees and go to four hundred seventy eight knots, I mean just do what you gotta do to get me where it says on the ticket. That's how out of control I am in a um in a jetliner. But 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 it's easy to be humorous about a balloon and the beach. And I said earlier this morning, it's not the first time there was a shot fired off the coast of uh, South Carolina with a, uh, a repressive regime being the target. But it's very serious. I mean, it is extremely serious that a, a a Chinese balloon was allowed, and then there's no other way. Now, I can't explain why it was allowed, but a Chinese balloon was allowed to enter American airspace in Alaska, to exit American airspace into Canada, to enter American airspace again in Billings, Montana, or around Billings, Montana, and to exit American airspace somewhere off the coast of South Carolina. Somebody owes the American people an explanation. Exactly what sort of satellite was it? See, see, the problem is, as much as we don't trust Beijing, do we really trust Washington much more? I mean, we'd love to believe that Washington is going to give us the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God. But how many of us really believe that? How many are already skeptical of what the narrative will be once we recover some of what happened? I mean, it's in shallow waters. I think there's already some um, there's already some evidence of something floating on shore in North Myrtle Beach. They say the majority, because of um, the ocean currents, the majority will be in North Carolina around Nags Head and some of the um, southern islands in, in South North Carolina. Not South, not North South Carolina, but South North Carolina. Um, I don't have any idea, but but there's a debris field. Let's find out what it is. Was it disabled? Did we do as we said we did? And by that, I mean, did we scramble whatever it was they were trying to do? Was it a satellite out of control or was there an intent here? All I know is that we allowed for a weekend a Chinese balloon to capture the imagination of the American people. And it did become a bit humorous. I mean, we joked around it flew over Lamar because that's where all of America's secrets are. But in Miss Pamplico, that's where the other half of American secrets are. But the caller reminds us how dead serious it is. It's not funny at all that an administration allowed a, a Chinese balloon, whether it's weather, whether it's a, a spy balloon, whether it's a military-equipped balloon, I don't have any idea. But, but it's not funny that Washington allowed that to take place. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Well, well, darn, Ken, you just took the wind out of my sails. Do you know why the Chinese sent it over the PD? I don't have any idea, sir. Well, of course. They wanted to confirm whether or not there was one traffic light in Pamplica. <laughs> but there's not. <laughs> I can confirm yeah. there is zero traffic lights in Pamplica. Yeah, well, maybe the Democrats casted them they want to label you as a liar or something like that and start a campaign against you but you know yeah keeping with the seriousness and um i have to admit it was kind of exciting you know out there with the binoculars and everything and i could actually i could actually see a flash from the um from the payload um uh but uh, here in florence of course didn't see it fall or anything like that but you know geez oh whiz people wake up 
it's poor leadership that makes things like this happen. Um, we just been skunked left and right. I mean, Afghanistan was the worst thing that could ever have happened. Things like this, and, and it's, it's the lack of leadership that, that makes these things happen. You know, in the military, a leader is responsible for everything that happens or fails to happen in his unit. And I've known guys that have been relieved of duty because um, somebody in their unit did something terribly wrong, but the leader was responsible and, um, you know, wrecks the guy's career and everything like that. But that, that's the way it is. And uh, I don't know. I just I, it, it, it is it is kind of funny. I'm seeing all kinds of texts floating back and forth about it. But, uh, yeah, too bad. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. I get a text from, I don't know, probably 8 o'clock Saturday morning from a buddy of mine. And he says, um, hey, man, this balloon's over my house. But he's the kind of guy that you would expect to send that sort of text. And the next text would be just completely and totally sarcastic. And then I get another text about two minutes later. And then I get a picture from one of my kids, you know, showing the balloon actually floating over. And it became somewhat of a novelty. It's like an eclipse or something. We became a little bit amused. But but it, in all seriousness, guys, let's slow down for a second. Um, stop with the amusement. And I was a bit amused. This picture, that picture, this is more clear than that. Wow, that's the um, I mean, that that's my buddy's house. I can see by the roof line and the flag out front. There's the the balloon, but it's a Chinese balloon that float floated for three days over American airspace, and we just kind of gulped in a in a weird and unimaginable way. And it's kind of a reflection on what have I said for a long time, Rev? We're very unserious people. Mm-hmm. I mean, shouldn't we have been demanding answers from our federal government? about why we're being allowed. I mean, right over my head is a Chinese balloon. How can that be, American leadership, American government? How can I be sitting in my yard and there's a known Chinese satellite, a known Chinese balloon or satellite balloon flying over my home? Uh, well, I mean, nothing to see here. Okay, but but why are, why was it allowed to float uh, freely and, and, and abnormally? Over our country's it airspace. should never have been. No, I mean, that's insane. I mean, I, I don't care if it's disabled, if it's inactive, if it's if it's um, off of its leash, so to speak. It doesn't matter to me. It's a, th- th- There's an optic to being a superpower. You take care of things. You deal with things. You handle things. And, and the second the satellite was known to have been entering airspace in Alaska, it should have been shot down. A serious nation would have demanded and expected that of its leadership. But we are an unbelievably unserious nation today. We're gawking and taking pictures, and all of a sudden it's a, it's a contest of how many times Trump allowed this to happen. It doesn't matter if anybody's ever allowed a Chinese spice balloon to fly over our country, that, that's a dereliction of duty. There should be some consequence for an American president not being prepared to deal with something like that. It's not a nuclear missile going Mach 4. It's a balloon floating in the jet stream. Maybe controlled by Chinese, maybe not. Let's go to the phone. Rick in Darlington, good morning. Good morning, fellas. Hey, I don't want to uh, cast really bad thoughts, but what if that rascal did accomplish its mission and the mission was to drop biological weapons on us the entire time that it was going across our nation. 
That's and interesting. What if it did that? Well, I mean, th- think. Okay, let, let's let's do this for a second. Let's play process of elimination. Is China our friend? No, we know that. Does China wish um, a, a great demise on America? Yes, we know that. China's made it very clear that the future, as far as they're concerned, will consist of one superpower, and it won't be the United States of America. I mean, they publicly proclaimed that to be an ambition of the Chinese Communist Party. So, so the country that has basically said, not only don't we want America to be a superpower, we want to replace America as the preeminent superpower on the planet. So, so the country that wants to be the superpower flies a balloon over the country that is a superpower, and the country that is a superpower does absolutely nothing about it. I mean, kind of kick that around in your noggin for a second or two or three. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Ed in Pamplico. Hello, Ed. Good morning. Morning. How are you guys this morning? We're good. How are you? Great. I was down there yesterday, several of us, and we watched that thing for over an hour, and there were three jets circling it, and then two broke off, and one went in. You could see it pop, and if you look at the Fox News footage or whoever footage, they didn't do anything but pop the balloon that appeared to us. It looks like the payload dropped. You can see that. You can see the balloon stay up there for several minutes as it drifted down to the ocean. But the payload dropped like a rock. I don't think, I think they intentionally just popped the balloon and let the payload hit. To destroy the payload? No, it did not destroy the payload. Okay, that's popped interesting. the balloon and let the payload come down. You can see it. You can watch Fox News or I've got some... It- but, but, but Ed, the, the question I'm asking is, surely if the balloon popped and the payload failed, the payload hits the ocean, it's going to destroy the payload to some degree. Yeah, well, it might have. You don't know. Yeah. They're going to recover it, I mean, but it looked like the way that payload was built, and you could see it hanging from the balloon the whole time, all the footage you see of it, you can see that payload looks pretty solid. Yeah, I and saw that. It was the size of three, football, three uh, school buses, you know, I don't know where it destroyed it when it hit the ocean. We'll find out, I guess, when the Navy recovers it. But it looked like to me that the payload was intact when it hit. Interesting. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. One more call before we get out of here. Leslie calling from near Charlotte. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, I'm just wondering what uh, the big guy's cut will be for this little activity. And I'll take it off. Yeah, what is it worth to let a Chinese (laughs) balloon fly from coast to coast? It's really further than coast to coast. It's from Alaska through Canada into Montana, ends up somewhere off the coast of South Carolina. Um, I stand by my comments. If you want to deal with repressive regimes, we fire bullets off the coast of South Carolina, missiles in this case. Um, I don't trust Beijing to tell me the truth. Do I trust Washington (laughs) to tell me? the truth that's interesting what sort of um payload destruction happened what sort of debris field is there how much of the debris will be recovered how much won't be recovered those are questions we have now rubio did say yesterday that once he gets back to washington the intelligence and foreign policy committees would meet and they'll further vet you know what we know and what we don't know Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. got a couple of minutes here for our takes mondays to make fridays Trivia brought to you by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. The first answer to this question receives a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays 
T-shirt. It was not a hot air balloon. A hot air balloon is when propane or other gas heats up the air, blows a balloon up. It's thinner than air. What gas? It, it could be. We don't know if it was one or the other. But what two gases were in the Chinese spy balloon that we spent the last hour talking about? It could have been either or, this gas or that. What are the two gases that it could have been? 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Yeah, that's uh, it's either hydrogen or nitrogen. Yeah, it could have been hydrogen or helium. That's one of the right answers, though. Who is this where you're calling from? My name's Michael. I'm calling from uh, Hartsville, South Carolina. Okay, hang on, Michael, just for a second or two. We'll get you back to the Royal Rev of Radio. He gets you information, and we'll get you some Pepsi product, some T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Um, yeah, Rev, you've got a little experience in hot air ballooning. A little bit. If I'm not mistaken. I did. So, so the propane heats up the air. The air becomes lighter than air, and it and it floats. That's right, in, but, a, hot, but in this, a hot air balloon. But this had no heating apparatus, therefore it had to be either helium or hydrogen. Is that what we understand? That's my understanding. Okay, and yeah. that's what I've read uh, best is is um the, the the helium or hydrogen is typically at the mercy of wind currents, um, the jet stream in particular, uh, if high enough in the atmosphere. And this was about fifty. I think they said jet. A jetliner can fly as high as 42,000 feet, but it's hard to get much higher than that decompression and oxygen. Anyway, I mean, I, I, that's physics, and I, you know, especially aerophysics, and I don't understand uh, much of that. But, um, yeah, it was either hydrogen or helium, we believe. So when the balloon burst, when the Chinese spy balloon burst off the coast of South Carolina, that's kind of weird to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if it wasn't true. It dispersed of or dispensed of the hydrogen or helium that um, kept the uh, the balloon afloat. Wow. A balloon floated across America for a weekend, and we knew it was owned and, uh, and managed by the Chinese. Wow. Is that a sign of strength or a sign <laughs> of a weak federal government? Mm. You decide. We'll talk tomorrow. Enjoy your day.